You know the scene in The Godfather at the little Italian restaurant? Michael's looking for the gun that was planted behind the tank of the old-fashioned toilet. He finds it, and he's about to leave the bathroom when he has a moment of hesitation. Is he capable of killing these two men waiting for him back at the table? As he's mired in that internal conflict, a train goes past outside. The racket from the passing train mirroring the inner turmoil he's feeling. Then he collects himself, and he goes back out and sits down at the table, waiting for his moment. As he's sitting there, not really hearing what Salazzo is saying to him, he stares off into space, and the train sound comes back, but it's a lot louder now. It drowns out everything else. Except there is no real train this time, it's all in his head. It's just his internal struggle reaching its crisis point. I don't really want to mansplain The Godfather to you. The Barbie movie already called my ass out on enough other shit as it is. I only bring it up because after watching today's film, I wondered if Christopher Nolan looked at that scene and said to himself, I bet I could keep that train shit going for at least three hours. For better or worse, no matter what else anyone ever says about this movie, for or against, it's very loud. Maybe it's just because I was sitting in the front row of a Dolby Cinema when I watched it, but yeah, lot of sound design on this bad boy. It's super loud. That's not all it is, of course. I don't mean to be reductive. It's an intricately crafted portrait of a man and his legacy and the destruction of both. It's the rare biopic where the person is neither so famous that everybody already knows the whole story, nor so obscure that you have to convince them that the person and their story matter in the first place. It's also a fabulous acting showcase for Killian Murphy, and a cast of former hot young stars now getting their second, third, or even fourth wind. Not Florence Pugh so much, she's still riding that first big wave. But Matt Damon is settling well into his role as the middle-aged heavy. RDJ got to shake off some rust after playing Iron Man for a decade. And I don't think I've even heard of a Josh Hartnett movie since 30 Days of Night. This film is a lot of things, and one of them is, yes, it's very loud. But why is it so loud? Why is it told in two timelines? Why attempt to recreate the Trinity test with no CGI? Why did perennial box office darling and constant film bro favorite Christopher Nolan decide to make this movie, and why did he decide to make it this way? We delve into a lot of the choices made in this film, and honestly, we come down on different sides of a lot of them. Does the narrative arc allow for enough historical context? Are the women in the film given short shrift? And on a scale of Raging Bull to Braveheart, where does this fall on the warts and all love letter versus Christ Poe's death scene mythologizing polarity against which all biopics are ultimately measured? War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So come get chained to a rock and tortured for all eternity with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director as we try not to cause a chain reaction that ignites the atmosphere and destroys the entire world, while we discuss Christopher Nolan's landmark other half of the unlikely meme-driven blockbuster event of the year, Oppenheimer. Call it in. It's danger close. 
Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Danger Close, a war film podcast. I am Dan, and I am here with my partners. Katie. And Liam. And today we are here to talk about as contemporary a film as I think we've done, which is still out in theaters right now. It came out a week from this recording, I think, or so. Oppenheimer from 2023. I think we might have been a little bit faster on uh, All Quiet, but yeah, this is about as about as hot off the presses. But All Quiet was streaming, not... It, was, it had just released on streaming, yeah. Yeah, we did it like the day after it came out. This is the first time that we've done one that's still in theaters, I think. Danger close in the aisles. <laughs> <laughs> and Katie's here with our mission briefing. Based on the book American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin, Oppenheimer, written and directed by Christopher Nolan, is making something of a surprise hit at the box office. While Nolan's films, outside of his Dark Knight trilogy, are usually middling successful, he has a rabid fan base. But this one has reached outside of the world of film bro and film enthusiasts to general audiences. I read many, many reviews on this film, including from some less reputable sources than I usually would, just because of the sheer number of offerings. Everyone has something to say about this movie. And generally, they had the same things to say. Great performances. It's overly long and sometimes plodding pacing. Wonderful sound design and a magical score. The history is relatively accurate, as much as it can be when we're digging so deeply into a real human's life and also trying to tell an entertaining story. In a rare treat for something like this, I was able to find a few reviews from actual physicists who were mostly disappointed, unfortunately, with how Nolan portrayed the science, saying he makes it overly complicated in service of propping up Oppenheimer as a man above regular people due to his knowledge and understanding of physics. This film has Oscar prospects in all kinds of categories, depending on how long the WGA and SAG after strikes take. The longer we are away from release, the harder it will be for voters to include this in their rankings. And to be clear, Danger Close supports the WGA and SAG AFTRA. Correct. We had planned to see this one as soon as we learned about it, and we all did a little bit of additional research to get more background on this complicated man. So I'm wondering, to start us off here, what were your expectations for this movie? Ooh. Ooh. Big question. Oh, but I think it's a good way to start us. Uh, it's a good way to get into the nitty gritty. I'm going to let Liam go first because Liam has been exceptionally quiet in our text thread about any of his opinions on this film. I have no idea how he did this, folks. Whereas Katie and I have opened up a little bit about our thoughts, and so we are dying to hear what Liam thinks. No, fuck you guys. You don't get to know in advance. And I specifically <laughs> asked him, while not spoiling anything in the text from a couple weeks ago, I specifically asked Liam, did it meet, exceed, or underwhelm your expectations? And he was like, I ain't telling you shit. So... <laughs> Liam, please enlighten us. <laughs> the floor is yours. So what what were those expectations? Um well, I have to be honest. It would be 
difficult. I don't know if it'd be difficult. It would be a mild surprise for me for this movie to underwhelm my expectations because my expectations were not very high. I'm admittedly not a Christopher Nolan stan. Are you a Christopher Nolan enjoyer? Uh, at times. Okay. okay. Uh, so no. So my, like I loved Memento when I saw it. I haven't seen it for years. Like I haven't gone back to it for a long time. So I don't know how it's aged. It's good. I remember it being very good. And I thought the, the structure of it was very clever. I liked Batman Begins and I liked the Dark Knight. I had some mixed feelings about Dunkirk, which I'm sure we're going to talk about at some point on the, on the podcast. So I won't get into that in, in too much detail right now, but my feelings on Dunkirk were mixed. That was an interesting viewing experience. I was vastly underwhelmed by Inception. And I think that my my overall sense of Nolan thus far is that he is a filmmaker of above-average technical competence. His ability to make a movie is pretty solid. I think his ability to tell a story is not so much. I think he's a dogshit storyteller. To the point that unless there's like established characters that we already know and are familiar with and can fill in our own gaps in our minds, he really doesn't have much of anything to bring to the table there. So one of the things that I thought was a strength of Dunkirk and why I think he should do more war movies is that in a war movie, you kind of just get a sense of these characters by the stuff that they do and how they react in in battle like under fire so it doesn't take a whole lot of like character development on the writer's part i also think that him making a biopic is probably a, a smart move for him in a similar sense he doesn't have to write oppenheimer as a character as much because oppenheimer actually existed if if that makes sense mm-hmm. so my my expectations for this coming in were that it was going to be visually impressive, loud, and have pretty much no real surprises in store for me. I felt like I could pretty much tell what this movie was going to be from the one trailer that I watched, which was the initial teaser trailer, because I didn't watch the second trailer because I I was like, I don't, need to watch the second trailer. I know I'm going to see it anyway, so I'm just going to reduce the amount of screen of it that I've seen going in. But yeah, those were my expectations was I expected to maybe be a little disappointed, but definitely not impressed. All right. Dan, what'd you think? Stay tuned for the next four hours to find out. (laughs) where Liam actually landed. <laughs> no, I can't go that late. We're we're keeping it shorter than that. <laughs> I also have a mixed history with Christopher Nolan. From what I've seen, I really like him as a person. Not I I don't know him, you know, personally and not that well, but I'm saying from interviews he's given, from the way he interacts with the people who he works with, he seems like a pretty good person, a very competent filmmaker, 
certainly someone who cares a lot about his craft and surrounds himself with people who mostly know what they're doing. And so I respect him as a filmmaker. I can say that. I have not loved every film that I've seen of his, and I won't go through an entire list, but I will say Inception is definitely going to end up as a DCE at some point. And I actually find it to be one of Nolan's most underrated films, despite the fact that it won four Oscars and that a lot of people love it. I think people love it often for more superficial reasons than it deserves. I think there's a lot below the surface of Inception that makes it a phenomenal film, but we'll get to that discussion when we get to it. Clearly, Liam and I will have some words. People are pretty split on Interstellar. I really liked it. I did love Memento. It is kind of a crazy way of storytelling, the way they do the timeline, but that is very much a factor in the plot of that film. And so I think the fact that there he decided to do two weird timelines makes sense for the concept of the character and the fact that it has to do with memory loss. The Dark Knight trilogy is a mixed bag. I like the Dark Knight as much as most people. Batman Begins, I thought was well made, a little boring, but I liked it. I did not like the third film. I did like Dunkirk. And of course, the infamous Tenet was such a complete dumpster fire of a film, (laughs) especially for a director who I generally like. I can't think of another example of a film where I watched 80% of it, turned it off and never looked back. I have never gone back to finish that movie because it was such a mess. So all that to say, that I tried my best to temper my expectations, knowing that Christopher Nolan has a lot of talent. And when when the stars align, he can make a really good film. But I know there's a lot of factors and it was definitely no guarantee. And I think his last film really sucked hard, even compared to a lot of <laughs> other people's films. So I really didn't know what to expect. And uh, I didn't know too much about Oppenheimer the person other than just the basics, although I did watch a great documentary, which we'll talk about. So I did get caught up on a lot of things. But uh, those are the expectations. I I would say tempered expectations, although I knew it was a big deal historically and it's his first biopic. So I certainly knew there was going to be a lot of effort put into it. Katie? So I'm kind of the outlier here because I I have seen every single Nolan film, including his like student films, except for Tenet. And I generally really enjoy Christopher Nolan's films. I like how he plays with the time. I like his insistence on big dramatic moments. And when I heard he was making this and then we decided we were going to cover it, I was like, He's only done a couple of things that were inspired by something else. And he's done one film, Insomnia, that was not his script. He just directs it. And honestly, it's, in my opinion, pretty good for what it is. Isn't that also a remake of a foreign film? Oh, probably. Unfortunately. So I decided, I saw, oh, this is based on a book with these kinds of big historical figures, especially in this time period. I love knowing more. Like, oh, I want to dig in. So I decided to listen to the audiobook and try to get it as much of it done as I could before I went to see the movie, which I saw this movie on opening weekend with my husband and had a lot of thoughts. <laughs> did you Barbenheimer? I did bar. Well, I Oppen Barbied, Oppen Arby. I did Oppenheimer first, then Barbie, which in my opinion is the way to do it. 
Mm. Hard disagree. I'm Barbie first by a mile. But then you get to see Barbie afterward and it's lifts the spirits, we shall say. <laughs> I'm not into my spirits being lifted. I don't know if you know that about me. I know. I know. But I am. Uh, after this kind of movie. Liam's Irish. I don't know if you know anything about these people. <laughs> I do. Have you met the Irish? I A little bit. So I, I kind of went into this expecting something really big and bombastic. Christopher Nolan really puts the bomb in bombastic. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I wasn't entirely sure how well he was going to portray Oppenheimer. Because he has this kind of like gods and men mentality about his films, where his main characters are often ubermensch or <laughs> superior examples of humanity. And if you are going to do a biopic about someone like this, having read the book, you can't do that with this guy. Oppenheimer was a incredibly complicated, fascinating historical figure who absolutely is worth having this kind of detailed film made about him. But I really worried that Nolan was going to over overpraise or... Deify? Yeah, he, he was going to lionize Oppenheimer as this specimen of man. When it's like, no, nope, that's a bad take. That is a bad take. And not... Not fair to Oppenheimer or any of the people that he worked with, or fair to humans in general. There is no human like this that he's trying to portray. And I was like, this will probably be fine. And then I watched it. And then I watched it again today because my 15-year-old wanted to go see it. Ooh. And I was like, of oh, fucking course we're going to go see it if you want to see it. See a big Florence Pugh fan now? I'm sure he is. Who isn't? <laughs> oh, but he he was really interested in it because he likes he likes weird movies, which I love. Not at all my fault. I swear to God. Uh huh. I, and I and we were recording tonight, so I was like, ah, oh, fuck yeah, let's go see it again. And and you know what? It was um, it was the same. I was like, oh, you did you did all right. It was what I expected, honestly, from Nolan. It oh, okay. played right into where I thought his strengths and his weaknesses would come out in this story. And I'm going to drop just a little spoiler for the future. This is an example where his filmic intuition almost just failed him. Because sometimes, my dude, CGI would be a good thing. So where do we even start with this? Because this is trying to be this weird aggregate of all of these types of films, right? It's trying to be a biopic. It's trying to be a historical, not documentary, but it's trying to make it feel like it's close to that while also dramatizing it. And then it's doing the thing that Nolan does that... The structure... This is also what I expected. Um, no, uh, he, he, the twist. Did y'all see the twist coming? Because in every Nolan film, there's a twist. And uh, sometimes I'm like, sir, could you just get off M. Night Shyamalan's nuts for just like 
two minutes, okay? You don't need a twist in every fucking movie. It works great in Memento, but you don't need it in everything. So I don't associate Nolan with the twist. Because there's one in every movie. Well, not so much in Dunkirk exactly, but this is still there in Dunkirk where, I mean, he didn't do this so much in the Dark Knight trilogy because you'd have a harder time doing it. Mm-hmm. But my guy cannot stop fucking with timelines. That's the big thing. And I think what he's, I again, I haven't seen Tenet, but one of the things that I didn't like about Dunkirk is how he labels his timelines when he starts fucking with them. And it's like, this section is the mole, and this is over one week. This is over 12 hours. This is over five minutes. And I'm just like, right. I just want to like wrap his knuckles with a ruler and just be like, fucking stop it. Just don't, don't do that. It's not actually necessary. Now in this, it makes sense because you're telling two parallel stories. Right. To a certain extent, you're telling the story of the development of the bomb and the story of the downfall of Oppenheimer. And to tell those two things. Is it the downfall of Oppenheimer though? Or is it the downfall of Louis Strauss? Well, that's the thing is, and that's where you get the twist is that it's not actually telling the downfall of Oppenheimer. It's telling this mirrored of like yeah, Strauss brings about Oppenheimer's demise and then through that brings out his own mirrored demise. Correct. But I don't understand why he felt the need to label them fission and fusion. Yeah, that feels a bit uh, on the nose. And when I was sitting there watching it and those labels came up and I was like, oh, Jesus, here we go. I too. I, I And I initially on my first viewing, I totally forgot about them like 20 minutes in because I, I was like. Okay, I guess that means something. But they came so close together, I, I was like, well, that's weird. And then it's never mentioned again. Yeah, like, there should probably be a third one. So, like, <laughs> right. if you're going to do that, like... Right, and then it's never mentioned again. No. It's just these brief flashes on the screen, and I was like, okay. Also, if you're going to use a title card to make an analogy, you need, like kind of a simple concept to make that analogy that leads to a more complex plot. Fission and fusion are not simple concepts. Like you have to like look at a diagram to understand what the hell they are. Again, I'm not a physicist, but one is like the splitting of the atom. And then the other is like the compacting of the hydrogen. I, I get it kind of. One is the splitting of the atom and one is the combining. Right. Yeah. They're kind of opposite processes. Exactly. So it's like that timeline is bringing the stories together I guess. I don't know. It's yeah. it's a little too convoluted. But I also understand from the things that I've read with Nolan that the point of the two, the, the black and white versus the color, everything in color is subjective and very much from Oppenheimer's point of view. And everything in black and white is objective. Okay, that's what he's that's what he's portraying. Well, I mean, he fails then. It's not terribly obvious to, to the viewers, but and I got to point out those scenes with Strauss because you see him in the congressional hearing over the isotopes and you see the first time and there's three different incidences of seeing Strauss react to Oppenheimer like, you know. You could use a bottle of beer in making atomic weapons. In fact, you do. I'd say isotopes are less useful than electronic components, but more useful than a sandwich. Yeah, dunking on him with a sandwich. Exactly. And you see Strauss, like, initially, he's he's very like, 
<laughs> oh, that guy. And then he gets a little less happy. And then you see his actual reaction at the end where he's been horrifically offended. Ridiculed. Right. He feels he has lots of feels. Very upset. Very uh, vindictive. And that is, I think, the thing that throws it off for me. It's like you can't be objective and then show us three different versions of the same fucking scene. Because all of those scenes are in black and white. None of them are from Oppenheimer's perspective. I thought one was in color. Not where you see Strauss's face. No, not where mm. you see Strauss's face. You see Oppenheimer right. giving his 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 thing. His, er, the, the color scenes are from Oppenheimer's point of view. Right. You see Oppenheimer give his testimony, but you don't see Strauss react to it. But there's three different reaction scenes with Strauss where he goes from, like, genial grandpa to, like rageful shrew yeah <laughs> i guess it's what i thought of it as dan what did you think about the structure to me the weird part about the structure like the fish infusion cards i can like take or leave it, they were so quick that i'm not even gonna bother to criticize them because i forgot about them as soon as they came up it's not like i was waiting to see what's the third point what's this all going to mean like i was like oh he whatever i don't care but generally what this film felt like to me was a two-hour story in the first and second act that was pretty linear, pretty well put together, and pretty well building towards a climax. And then half of another movie in the third act that's like a courtroom drama. It felt like a movie and a half. Which part of it is the courtroom drama? The the Strauss in the Senate hearing or uh, Oppenheimer in his security clearance? Both. They're two separate courtroom dramas. But nonetheless, it all felt like both in length, because spoiler alert, I definitely think this movie is way too long. I saw it twice. I think if it's three hours, two hours and 20 minutes would have done it. I think the first two hours, I would mostly leave as they are they have issues but in terms of pacing and length and climax etc they make sense i would cut everything in the last hour to like maybe 20 minutes i think it's just way too much and again it feels like it's not doing justice to that part of oppenheimer's life while also being way too much information for this film one of the reviews i read that were like this film is like seven pounds of sausage stuffed in a three pound bag. I was like, yes, I 100% agree with that. <laughs> He's doing an extra thing, a little, I don't want to say half-assed because you can see the effort that was put into it, but it's just like too much. Split your film in two, put an intermission in it, do something, but don't force me to watch this third act that feels like it's kind of tacked on. Now, that kind of leads us a little bit into the source material mm -hmm. because the source material reads similarly. Uh, and like Katie, I'm like an hour behind Katie, but we didn't completely finish the book before this recording, but I got through most of it. And it also feels like two acts that kind of climax into the Trinity test and then sort of everything that happened afterwards in the third part of the book. Katie, you're disagreeing? I'm. I've read more than one book like this. The book feels very in line with what it's trying to do, which is a biography of a famous person. You know, mm -hmm. it much more starts with the beginning. I mean, it doesn't even start with the beginning of Oppenheimer's life. It starts with the beginning of his parents' life and how 
He comes to be to America because Oppenheimer was uh, a German Jew. His parents emigrated from Germany to New York. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole lot of in-depth information that is very vaguely referenced about his youth, in particular his uh, Jewishness, because he was more of a quote-unquote upper-class Jew who tried to, and this is from the book, tried to kind of distance themselves from being too Jewish, Mm -hmm. you know? And then we see that, and that's all illustrated in that scene where they're on the train with, uh, or he's on the train with Robbie, and Robbie is using Yiddish. Quantum physics wasn't challenging enough, Schwitzer. Schwitzer. Show off. (laughs) Dutch in six weeks, but you never learn Yiddish. They don't speak it so much, my side of the park. Screw you. That is a straight-up reference to this conflict of how Oppenheimer felt about being Jewish and how that impacted his life from infancy to death. So, you know, the book, I think, goes in a it goes in a very chronological order, mm-hmm. except in the beginning, where we get this introduction that gives us a gives us this really deep insight into Oppenheimer's psyche and how incredibly tortured he was on the inside. I do think that that's a, a good example of good adaptation you know if you can take all of this backstory that they're able to go into detail with in a biography and then sort of like generally sum up that conflict in a few lines of dialogue that don't like stand out as like here's your exposition i think Mm. that's actually like probably a pretty decent adaptation for the scope of the movie that it's going for usually yes i would say I have my sincere issues with how it portrays Oppenheimer as a human and Oppenheimer's early and interpersonal life. Honestly, I think that's the part that really bothers me the most about this film. But back to the source material is like, it is very, from that point on with the introduction where we kind of get the idea of who this dude is, and then it goes from beginning to end with very few time differences unless absolutely necessary to kind of give us some bigger perspective on how this is going to impact our future story. And Nolan is is doing his best, for sure. This is a complicated, this is a big book with a lot of depth to it. And Nolan, I think, errs on the side of simplifying way too much. Okay, I was going to save this for later, but it's directly on topic, so I think now's the time to bring it up. This film made me feel a way that I've never felt before ever with a film. Yes, this has some simplification and clearly you can't turn a 26 hour audiobook and however many pages the actual physical book is long into a three hour movie and include everything. So characters are simplified. We'll get to the characters, but I think Oppenheimer's early life, a lot of his sort of uh, emotional sexual proclivities, his you know, the the intimate side of him and the emotional side of him is pretty sparse in the film, as well as the two women, two to three women that he's at least alluded to being involved in are very oversimplified. I don't think they're portrayed inaccurately. I think what you see on screen is accurate for the people if you read about them, but there's a lot left out and he very much condensed some characteristics of those two women, for example. But generally speaking, This is the first time I can think of where I wished this adapted screenplay and this film 
diverged more from the book and was a little bit more Hollywood. I think this follows the source material in a very linear way, which is why I fell asleep a couple of times the first time I watched it. <laughs> and I think it it views like a book in a lot of ways, with exceptions. I'm not saying there is no usage of the visual medium here. I will talk about the pros and the good things, and certainly there is some of that. But I think all the famous lines, most of the dialogue, most of the incidents that are specific are pulled right out of the book. Again, yes, sometimes yes. to great effect. The guy who runs, I forget who the character is or who the person is, but the guy who runs out on the barber and the barber's chasing him down the street, he's the guy who literally, the physicist who read the news that they mm-hmm. had split the atom for the first time. And he literally did that. He ran out in the middle of a haircut to run to the lab and tell everyone what had happened. So like, that's from the book. So many of the quotes, including comments that General Leslie Groves, played by Matt Damon, says to Oppenheimer, like, I don't even think he invented any of his dialogue. I think all of it is pulled directly from the book. And that's fine. Again, I'm glad that it's historically accurate. But I felt that the dryness of the book, which is not necessarily a bad thing in a book that's a biography, was not translated enough for the film. And again, I can't remember. Usually you're going, that's too Hollywood. That's too Hollywood. This is bullshit. That's made up. I wish they had stuck more to the facts. This is the first time I can remember in ever, maybe, where I wish the film had been done more differently than the book. Because again, between the structure of doing the first two acts with some climax and then doing basically all courtroom drama for the third act, which is like somewhat the line that the book follows, even though the book expounds on some things. Good Lord, I could not hear any more about communism in this book. They go into that forever. I mean, his background flirtations with it, but also the courtroom stuff. I mean, you hear so many quotes repeated like the same thing three or four different times where I'm like, yes, the Chevalier incident. I get it. The Chevalier incident. Yes, he is not a card carrying member of the CP, which I get it. In real life, I'm sure he had to say the same things over and over and over again. Good Lord. Which since Dan and I listened to the audiobook, I got to say, they they refer to the Communist Party throughout the entire audiobook as the CP after it's introduced. And every time I heard it, I was like, what are you? T- oh, communist party! Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was like, oh no! It was oh like, no! Why, no! 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 Why would you? Why would you? You end up on a different kind of list. You don't need to shorten that. Actually, <laughs> could you just say communist party? Because wait, I'm sorry. What else is CP? I'm missing the joke here. Uh, child pornography on internet circles. Oh, I did not know that. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. a yeah. Don't do that. I do have, and again, I was going to save this for later because it's not like really a breakdown thing, but it's more just as far as we're talking about the script and the writing of it. One thing that I noticed a little bit the first time I saw it, a lot more the second time, and Dan, you reminded me of this, or or you you made uh, allusion to this, but I don't know if it's from the book or if this is just kind of Nolan's script writing. There is not a clever line in this entire movie that isn't repeated at least once, if not twice. And I'd be willing to bet they are all pulled directly from history and from the book. Yeah, but I mean, even even stuff that's like, 
fear he will take you only so far. Mm. Like Jesus Christ, like this is, becomes like the mantra of the movie. Like it gets repeated. Like I'm like, God damn, yeah, okay, we get it. He tells that guy, "You're gonna be okay. You're gonna be okay." And then he's like, sees him again. You're gonna be okay. Which I was kind of grateful for that one because all these white dudes were really blended together. So I was really appreciative of being like, oh, that's the guy that he tells is going to be okay. <laughs> like, I, I get it. Yeah. That's that guy now. There's a lot of a lot of blur between who's who. It, what's what's his face trying to feed him oranges? Like, that happens twice. That's Robbie. Yeah, Robbie feeding him oranges because he's, gonna, he's too skinny. He's got to eat something. You know, everything, everything happens twice in this movie. And it's not always the same person saying it. But at least twice, if not three times, like this movie is just jam packed of those. So if you liked a line, don't worry, you're going to hear it again in about two hours. And I thought the most disappointing use of that trope was him quoting the most famous line in history related to the character and the subject. The line that everyone knows is going to be used in the film, and I don't blame them for using it by all means. You couldn't make this film and not use the line from the Bhagavad Gita. But the fact that it's used in the sex scene. And now I am become death. Destroyer of worlds. Which I thought was unnecessary. And I even think I've read of some Hindu people being kind of offended by it. Yeah, I think that was it was a problem in India. It was. I also don't think that's in the book, and I don't think it happened in real life, as far as I can tell. And so I was like, why are you wasting the effect of that line by not only using it twice, but introducing it in a sex scene where I'm like, come on. So then by the time he says the line, the way it happened in real life, which he says on video, and granted, I'm sure Oppenheimer himself said the line several times in his life because it's something he had read that was in his head, etc. Right. I'm sure when he said it on TV wasn't the very first time he uttered it. But still, for the film, that was the most egregious example of that. And somebody can somebody can correct me on this. If, if Christopher Nolan wants to write in and tell me how it really happened, I'd love it. But watching it a second time, I'm not sure he says it a second time in as much as they play the audio mm-hmm. from the sex scene of him saying it in a almost total blackout on screen. And now I am become death. The destroyer of worlds. Correct. That is what happens. Oh, okay. Interesting. They don't even show him like muttering it to himself on screen. It just cuts back to the audio of yep. him as as Florence Pugh is mounting him. No, it, yeah, exactly. It's um during the explosion of of the atomic bomb, the test explosion the during the atomic test. bomb. Yes, he you hear it played again over his face from the side about halfway through, and then it cuts through because I was watching for this. Part. And the I was only. Like, the only reason I noticed it was I thought I heard the pages rustle, like I heard them in the... Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't notice that. Yeah. And there's a brief, like, sigh from her in the background. Either way, though, there, there, there's nothing more you could do to take away from an impactful line that is famous to history and everybody watching this movie already knows the line by heart than by using it twice. I thought that was a really poor choice. Yeah, no, and it's indicative of most of the... Most of the writing in the in the movie is do like fucking everything twice. 
And and this is a perfect example of why I think this is a poor adaptation, because the book sets it up. The history in this book talks about how he finds comfort in the Bhagavad Gita and him quoting it, not that line, but other lines Mm -hmm. to other people really gives us a wide-ranging picture of how the Bhagavad Gita influenced Oppenheimer's thoughts and philosophy and all of this. So then it makes sense. And so this is one of those really poor adaptation moments where Nolan is trying to like bring it in, but we're not actually going to talk about how Oppenheimer valued this book and it definitely helped guide his life. We're just going to make it a reference in a sex scene and then bring it back later. And it's like, eh, dude, no, no. And that, I think, is part of how poorly he portrays Oppenheimer's youth. And that does a great disservice to the rest of the movie, I think. Yeah, I don't know if he would win the Razzie for worst adapted screenplay, but I think like second or third place. Is... <laughs> no one should win the Razzie. Razzies are terrible. No, but he's he's also actually going to get nominated for the for the script for this. That's actually going to happen. Yeah, he's definitely getting best adapted. I I'm going to join the academy just so I can vote against it. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's this this movie is going to be up for an awful lot of awards. The ones that it will really deserve are for the acting. Yeah, and I would say uh Ludwig Göransson really deserves a, a nod for the score. Fuck no. Nope, hate it. Okay. Well, we're going to get into that, I guess. But the sound design is is pretty good, I think. Also hated that, but well, this is where my two viewings will have to come in, but I'm glad we all saw it twice. I saw it once in IMAX, non 70 millimeter, like regular IMAX. And the second time I saw it in my old local theater because it was playing on the principal screen in 70 millimeter, non IMAX. And I was like, oh, cool. Now, as a caveat, Jackie and I did go see this at the 11 p.m. showing. We were there from 11 p.m. till 2 a.m. And so, you know, the third act dragging definitely dragged more for me because I was tired and impatient. But the IMAX sound was terrible. And I don't know if it was the theater or something to do with the actual, however they set it up. But the soundtrack was like 25% too loud and blowing my eardrums out every time it came on. And a lot of the dialogue was hard to hear. Which immediately I was like, there goes Nolan at it again, making these sound mixes that he thinks are cool when really they make the movie impossible to watch. When I saw it at the regular theater in 70 millimeter, totally fine. Soundtrack was great. I was actually able to listen to and appreciate the soundtrack, which I had not been able to do before. And the dialogue was fine. So I was maybe uh, judged Christopher Nolan too soon. Because I was like, oh, okay, this was either specific to the IMAX or specific to that other theater, which I don't know. It's a modern, nice theater. So, no, it's the theater. It's the theater. Okay. Trust me. So, I saw it twice as well once in IMAX with laser, whatever the fuck that means. I don't understand why you would make a movie that its perfect format in your mind is. Something that like, what, 7% of screens in America have the ability to show. Mm -hmm. So I saw it once in the IMAX. That was my second viewing. The first time I saw it was in the Dolby Cinema experience. 
that and Barbie I saw in Dolby, and that was the first two movies I've ever seen in Dolby. I'm kind of addicted. The sound in there is fantastic. It does this weird magic trick of like rattling your bones and the seats, but also you're able to hear it, Mm -hmm. which is weird. And I don't understand how they did it, but it made it a much more immersive viewing experience and probably more pleasurable. But I do have a lot of issues with the score and the sound design in this movie. See, I saw it at uh, the Showplace Icon, which kind of does a mix of both. Unfortunately, they only have one theater that has that. uh, It's Dolby Atmos is Mm. what it's called. Mm -hmm. The Dolby Atmos sound where it's like true surround sound is kind of what they call it. But Barbie was the movie they chose for that because it's the biggest theater they have, which makes sense because there definitely was a lot of demand for it. And then Oppenheimer was right next door in their biggest screen, but it doesn't have that Dolby Atmos sound. So I saw it both times at the same theater, and it's fine. The theater I go to is very, very good. I've never had an issue with the projection, with the sound, with any of it. So I was like, ah, this is all right, but I would have liked to hear the Dolby Atmos sound with Oppenheimer. Barbie was great with that. It was. It really was. It was fantastic. But also, I was like, I'm not sure that this movie needs the Atmos sound. I'm not sure this movie needs this was a recurring theme for me because I watched some of the behind the scenes stuff and it was like very clear that every time the actors were being interviewed on the red carpet and stuff, even the journalists were in on it. They were like, why do you think this film should be seen in like IMAX 70 millimeter? They asked every actor the same question and every actor answered the same question. And I was like, this movie is 90% dialogue. Yes. Okay, great. 70 millimeter makes close-ups of people's faces look very detailed and nice. But having seen it in IMAX and then having seen it in 70 millimeter on a regular screen, I was like, they're really marketing this hard. And I don't think it needs either of these formats yeah no they've they got crib sheets on how to answer all of those questions for sure it was just very obvious that everybody on the production was really pushing the imax 70 millimeter it's like a new drink at starbucks there's like two or three scenes that are like worth seeing on that format and even then they're not that fucking great this is not you know a sergio leone western (laughs) <laughs> this is this is a biopic. Like we don't need to see Cambridge in seventy millimeter or point eight seconds of the Berkeley campus in seventy millimeter. I'm like, oh look, it's Berkeley. Wait, it's gone. <laughs> when I saw this in the Dolby Cinema, I actually was in the very front row, so I did get that nuclear experience. How do you sit in the very front row? That sounds awful. I actually don't mind sitting in the front row, even in shitty seats. Oh, God, I'd rather die. Back before the days of stadium seating, my preferred place to sit was like the second or third row back. But I just wanted to be able to like look up and see the whole ass screen like just right in front of me and like drown everything else out. So I didn't mind, but it was definitely pretty intense. Those were the only seats left in the theater was front row seats. So... Speaking of the visuals, which I would say can be summarized in, there's several abstract visuals of basically Oppenheimer 
imagining the atom and electrons and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. the famous Trinity test. Those are like the two big ones that I can think of. What did you guys think of that? I hated it. Really? Yep. Which? Both? All? Everything? That was really harsh. I really disliked the atomic bomb scene. I thought that was not good. The opening stuff, I I guess. I mean, I feel like this is one of those areas where, like, I'm a total fucking nerd. I've been reading about quantum mechanics since I was in fucking high school. So these concepts are not new or weird or whatever to me. I don't need them portrayed in an artistic way to understand what's going on. So to me, it's like, okay, I guess maybe this will, maybe somebody else needs this. And I didn't care for how much they take the place of Oppenheimer's mental health issues because that dude had some fucked up brain problems as someone who has some fucked up brain problems. Like he, he was absolutely a tortured individual internally and the film really glosses over that and uses those to kind of, oh, he was just really tortured in college because he had all these deep thoughts. It's like, no, no, no. His his thinking about quantum mechanics didn't have shit to do with the fact that he like did all of these other like really weird, bad interpersonal things. Those are two very separate ideas. And but he threw glasses in the corner. Yeah, that how it dismisses his mental health needs and differences. He was just so tortured by genius is, is gross and upsetting to me. You don't have to be a genius to be tortured by your brain and you don't have to not be a genius. Like geniuses aren't always tortured. And like these two things have nothing to do with each other, essentially. And I didn't like how flippant Nolan is about that because it is very very flippant i think and then the biggest special effects thing is the explosion of the atomic bomb the testing is just boring like what are you doing like i i get he wanted to do this all without any cgi because no one is a purist and here i think that really failed him because what we see is nothing like what an actual atomic bomb explosion looks like. It, it is stylized and abstract in a way that the description that we get in the book, or if you watch footage of atomic bomb tests from this time, his refusal to use the technology that's available to him because whatever, I'm not going to speculate, Makes for a shittier product. We should see the violet haze that suffuses the world. We should see the heat that's coming off of this. We should see the insanity of a 10,000 foot mushroom cloud that takes minutes to disperse. Like this should have been such a huge, beautiful moment. Beautiful and that it is beautiful and terrible. And it's just, we see some fireballs. And I was like, mm, this does not express to me the horror and majesty that is a nuclear fission response where humanity has created this intense level of destruction. I was very disappointed with how Nolan 
decided to portray that. I'm also kind of going to call bullshit on the no CGI thing because at the end of the movie, they show shots of Earth from space with like a fireball raging through the atmosphere. I'm like, I don't want to speak out of turn. It is possible that he did it without CGI, but I feel like it's highly unlikely. I think most of the comments might be taken out of context. And what he's saying is the Trinity test is done without CGI. Well, no, I mean, there's uh, from composites and things like that. Like, I don't know about uh, like how they got the shot of, of earth. I have no idea, but I know if you look at something like, uh, Darren Aronofsky's the fountain, there's no mm-hmm. CGI in the fountain. And you're like, how is there no fucking CGI in this? He's floating in space in a bubble next to a tree that's growing out of dirt in the, but like, it doesn't make sense, but like mm. there are techniques for doing that. Sure. So if he says there's no CGI, I'll take him at his word. And he puts things together with computers. So there's visuals created by computers, but it's not computer generated images. This isn't Jurassic World, right? Correct. It's not green screened. It's right. Not- and I, I'm a big, big proponent of people trying to do things practically, doing practical effects over CGI, because in this modern MCU Transformers world, people make entire films out of green screen, except for the actors. And you can tell, and mostly it looks like garbage. And I appreciate directors who make a point to do things practically, but I think the best effects are really a combination of the two things. Denny Villeneuve is famous for this, where he's like, well, we make things practically and then we embellish them using CGI exactly. by using, showing refracting light or adding more sparks or whatever the case may be. I agree with Katie that a combination of the two methods would have made the Trinity test more A, accurate and B, more impressive. Although I did find that I appreciated his effort of delaying the sound from the explosion and having it show up. Although doing that for like, 30 seconds or more was just a weird manipulation of time because it's not like people were moving in slow motion. I'm like, it didn't take 30 seconds for the sound of the explosion to get there. Yeah, not not from how far away they were. So I'm kind of like, what are you doing here? But whatever, I can let that go because again, I can see that he was trying to do something cool with the sound. I don't think it succeeded in that scene. I do think it succeeded in other scenes later. So I'll give him some credit there. Back to the original abstract forms i'll disagree with katie a little bit in that i take her point about oppenheimer's mental health and it not being portrayed for me that's separate from the images we see at the beginning yes they do draw some slight connections to like they ask him did you like it better in europe than in america when they're grilling him Mm -hmm. and he says no no i uh i was homesick um Emotionally immature, troubled by visions of a hidden universe. So they do make a connection to it, but I did like the look of, to me, it wasn't explaining the atom to the audience. To me, it was trying to depict what images of physics he had going on in his head. And I liked that because it is... Oppenheimer was a genius. I mean, he wasn't a perfect person and he had flaws. And I'm not saying he was an Ubermensch or anything like that. But many people who took his classes and who worked with him talked about his natural, inherent ability to intuitively understand and explain concepts the way nobody else in his field could. 
And, you know, him being able to explain something in two minutes. You see this in an interview in the documentary. By the way, this documentary, which we've mentioned a few times already, is called The Day After Trinity. You might find it on YouTube. It was nominated for the Academy Award. Really, really great documentary. Anyways, his coworkers talk about his ability to explain concepts that would normally take hours to understand. And he had a grasp of it where he could kind of explain it to you in a couple of minutes. So I appreciated the effort of trying to show what was going on in his head in reference to the theory of physics and the atom. I didn't find that to be condescending my intelligence and that they're trying to show me what an atom looks like. I felt like it was a depiction. It was a subjective depiction Mm. of what was going on in his mind. And I did like that. While I agree that they left out a lot about his life and mental state that could have been in there, I didn't connect the two things quite as directly. I think the line that really pissed me off is when Gene says, You just needed to get laid. Took my analyst two years, and I don't think they ever put it that succinctly. Okay. So you're an incel? And the book definitely has a little bit of that in it. But it also doesn't dive into the history with his mother. And that is the thing that bothered me a lot about the history of, like, his and his mother's relationship drastically affected the rest of his life. And I I, I don't know. This isn't necessarily a feeling of the movie. You can't include everything, right. but it, it was a pretty big deal for Oppenheimer and, and took him years and years to get over and certainly impacted his life in a lot of different ways. And they just kind of, Nolan just kind of leaves that on the side. But we do get a little bit of him with his brother, which I did appreciate because him and his brother were very close and had a complicated relationship. Another great casting choice was uh i don't know I, I don't have it in front of me who played his brother but he looks a lot like the real frank oppenheimer he definitely looks like he is the most similar dylan arnold is who plays frank oppenheimer by the way thank you but before we get into the casting and the acting which we definitely need to give its due uh liam what 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 else did you have on the visual effects and stuff so i didn't have the same problems necessarily with the with the trinity test that you did Katie. I mean, you're right, but it also didn't bother me Mm -hmm. so much, you know, and I think I read after the fact that he did it all without CGI. And I was like, okay, it didn't really bother me because there were other things that were bothering me at that point. Mm -hmm. Boring is not the word that I would use for that sequence. I think the word that I would use for that sequence is tedious. Okay. I think the editing and the sound design leading up to it, I did have a lot of problems with the sound design of this movie. I think what really terrifies Christopher Nolan is silence because he uses silence for jump scares. (laughs) I think, (laughs) and in this one, it's like, you, you know, the Hans Zimmer blah, Mm-hmm. From from the Inception trailer, where it's like, and then like just all of a sudden, everything Christopher Nolan did had the blah. Yep, I was surprised we didn't get Hans Zimmer in this. That he chose Goranson. Well, he was. I think he was busy doing some other shit, or I don't know. And Goranson is huge right now because of um, Mandalorian. The score and the sound design for this movie—it's all blah all the time. The blah doesn't stop. 
It's just all blah. For three hours, it's blah. And it starts from the very beginning with the blah. And that's what I hated about the first 10, 15 minutes of this movie. He kind of like stopped with the bullshit there after about 10, 15 minutes. But I was sitting there going like, what kind of Terrence Malick ass motherfucking shit am I sitting through right now in this Christopher Nolan movie? Oh my God. Okay. So those first 10 minutes, I, I, that was the point I, I leaned over to my husband and I, I never talk during movies because I, I, I have standards for myself that are way too ridiculous. <laughs> I'm a professional. <laughs> well, I mean... I, I'll take little notes on a pad of paper with a flashlight, but I'm not going to talk. And no, I, no flashlight. You just take them in the dark, my friend. And that's why I learned to write in cursive again, because I don't have to lift my hand up so I could write the whole note in cursive. So anyway, I leaned over to my husband. Well, well it's about halfway through that beginning, and I was like, Liam is not going to like this movie. And he was like, <laughs> yes, because that's exactly what I thought. I was like, what is this Terrence Malick bullshit? <laughs> Liam is not going to care for it this. Is, it's fucking Terrence Malick bullshit. I can't like I was sitting here going like the whole like you're opening with this. This can't yes! be the whole thing. It reminded me of the end of Babylon, but in the beginning of Oppenheimer, it was just like this weird montage like. It's a it's an assault on the senses. But then it just stops at a certain point and like we never go back to that. We we don't go back to it. Thank fucking God. Thank God, agreed. I loved it. I fucking hated it. I was meh. I was like, this is what are we doing here? Well, and it was one of those things like, why are we opening with this? You're setting the entire tone for of the movie with this montage of like weird fucking tree of life bullshit. Which, again, an impressive experience in the Dolby Cinema when, like, your whole goddamn body shaking like you're on a roller coaster. But it got a little quieter, but never really. Like, that that underlying blah feeling. Again, it's not the Hans Zimmer blah, exactly. But it's a, a spiritual successor of the blah. Except it just lasts forever until they drop the bomb. And then it just cuts out. It's like the ticking clock in Dunkirk. Yeah, and and it's the the thing is is that just like I almost kind of respect and appreciate making me listen to two hours and fifteen minutes of blah just for that dead silence. That takes a certain level of commitment to your concept that I appreciate, but I also hated it. <laughs> You could have just had this sequence be blah and had probably the same impact and maybe nobody would notice, but like putting me through two hours of blah and then cutting out, I don't know if the juice was worth the squeeze on that one. Man. <laughs> well, you know, for me, the action is the juice. Oh my God, Liam, you've said blah like 30 times in the last three minutes. <laughs> there was a lot of blah. I mean, it, this sounds like the for you the oral equivalent to some directors we've talked about that just can't hold the camera still where you're just like just put the camera down it's kind of like can we just get some silence for a second nolan is the epitome of that but it's with his entire filmmaking style instead of just the cinematography it's like he can't leave shit alone nope 
Agreed. So, the acting. Because this movie really lives or dies on its acting, as much as Christopher Nolan has opinions and thoughts and ideas about what it should look like. If you do not have that basic structure of strong performances, something like this is never going to work. Let's kick it off with Gillian Murphy. We've talked about him before on this show. He's a Fright Pub favorite. He's a friend of the podcast. <laughs> He's beautiful. Beautiful man. This film wouldn't work without him. I, I definitely, in some ways, I was like, dude, no, you did too much. Because the amount of weight he lost for this, I think he lost like 40 pounds for this role, which he did not have 40 pounds to lose. I could lose 40 pounds and you wouldn't even notice. He lost a lot of weight for this and a good chunk of it was muscle mass. And he talked about how hard that was. But Oppenheimer... Honestly, he looks like he's an anorexic <laughs> as someone who, who's had that issue in the past. Like, he didn't eat. He drank and he smoked. And that's that's how he subsisted on life is drinking and smoking. Yeah, I mean, according to Killian Murphy, this film took, it was a 56-day shoot. Oof. And you know how in The Machinist, where Christian Bale went from, you know, mm -hmm. normal, healthy, muscular body. This is in his pre-Batman days, but still. Yeah. Like two cans of tuna and an apple or something a day? Oh, I read that it was a cup of black coffee and an apple a day the entire time Christian Bale was filming that film. And I mean, he is like falling apart. He's a skeleton. Apparently, according to Killian Murphy, he ate an almond a day for 56 days filming this. That sounds like hospitalization. Yeah. Because again, he didn't have that much to lose in the first place. I mean, actors do crazy stuff. I would say all of the casting in this is phenomenal in terms of likeness. He's great as Oppenheimer. And Oppenheimer himself, like you said, didn't have the greatest diet. No. When they were trying to do the whole, let's make all the scientists join the army and give them a physical because we want him in uniform. <laughs> that was my favorite. <laughs> which was a dumb idea and didn't last long. But he failed his army physical because he was, you know, at least 15 or 20 pounds underweight for his height. I think he was 5'10". And like 120 pounds. Mm -hmm. So it's accurate looking. And in terms of likeness, like the likeness is there. Of course, Killian Murphy's acting. I've never seen him not do a phenomenal job in anything that he's in. I think my favorite nickname was uh, Grumpy Matt Damon as uh, Leslie Groves, the general <laughs> charge of Los Alamos. That's pretty good casting and pretty spot on. Yes. I think uh, Robert Downey Jr. said that he had never seen anybody sacrifice for a role the way that he watched Killian Murphy do. Yeah, Robert Downey Jr. was very uh, effusive in his praise of Killian Murphy in this. He's effusive in his praise of everything with this movie. Somebody should tell him he already got the job. I think this was the role that Robert Downey Jr. needed after being Tony Stark. Yeah, he's tired of playing Tony Stark. Like, I think he was just so ecstatic to go back to his acting roots. I mean, he did a phenomenal job portraying Charlie Chaplin when he was like 26 or something. And this is... Mm -hmm. And high on cocaine or whatever. Yeah. This is a great different role for him. Also, I don't know. I don't have like the right shot in front of me, but I swear in some of the stills, I was like, wow, I didn't know 
that he would be the perfect casting if you paint a mustache on him for Groucho Marx. But if anyone could ever play Groucho Marx in a film, it's Ooh, Robert Downey Jr. That would be good. Oh my God, for sure. And I'm not making fun of him. I'm saying like he was, his Strauss looked a lot, again, not in a comedic way, but in certain uh, angles and stuff. I was like, oh my God, he looks like an older Groucho Marx for sure. Yeah, because yes. Groucho Marx, I mean, the, the Groucho hair and the mustache and the eyebrows were like sharpied on anyway. Mm-hmm, like the mm-hmm. What I had read was that Christopher Nolan asked him to watch Amadeus. <laughs> really? And pay close attention to the relationship between Mozart and Salieri when he was thinking about this character. And that is really good acting direction on yeah. Nolan's part because makes sense. It's one of those things that isn't obvious when you're watching the movie but when you hear it afterwards and you think back and you're like i see all of the work that robert dunny jr did in bringing that into the role and i thought that was really good no robert dunny jr was excellent killian murphy was excellent they're both getting oscar nominations that's Mm -hmm. that's a a slam dunk i don't know who's gonna win i think robert dunny jr will win best supporting i'm gonna call it now it's a long season we don't know what else is gonna happen But he's definitely getting the nomination. Killian Murphy definitely getting the nomination. For I think Robert Downey Jr., that transition, I think that's what's likely is in that we we start off with him portraying himself as sympathetic, and then we see the the heel turn, if you will. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think he definitely stands a good chance. Killian Murphy, I, I think, stands an equally good chance as Oppenheimer because it's such a transformative role, and Killian Murphy like has already shown himself to be a dedicated, like, all-in actor, and this is even more. But for my money, Emily Blunt and... (sighs) Got issues with with how Nolan portrays Kitty Oppenheimer and Gene Tatlock and any woman in this. I think either Florence Pugh or Emily Blunt could get nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Mm -hmm. I think if, and again, this is just me kind of reading the room, I feel like it would go to Florence Pugh over Emily Blunt. Maybe. Even though it's a smaller role. But there's way not enough there. I don't mean, I don't have a problem with her acting, but. She's naked through over half of it. So like, there's that. Who cares? A lot of people. The Academy. Then there's also the fact that her character kind of haunts the rest of the film, even when she's not on screen. Mm -hmm. I thought Florence Pugh, again, I have issues with the presentation of this character. Yeah. Based on even just the cursory Google search that I did after watching the movie about Gene Tatlock. In that short span of time, Florence Pugh's character was the person i was most intrigued to know more about yeah coming out of the theater so florence Pugh gave a really just short firecracker explosion of a performance that i think she did an awful lot with very very little screen time agreed but emily blunt had more time to develop this character and a lot of it is i mean the nature of the 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 portrayal from the script is pretty shallow through a lot of it, but she does have a marvelous turn in the hearing 
where all of that shittiness of humanity that she has put up for display through the rest of the movie kind of coalesces into this fucking badass bitch and just like turns it on the guy that you want her to turn it on. I mean, I thought that scene was a really nice payoff for that character. Kind of, except she goes from bitch to badass bitch, which again is, I don't think the portrayal of these two women that we see is inaccurate from the history that I read. It's just an extremely limited and two-dimensional snapshot of those women. Whereas when you go to source material, you look at their background. I mean, Jean Tatlock was a, and I, I say this in quotation marks, for the 40s. She was a diagnosed homosexual yeah by the dsm at the time because it was considered you know a mental disorder at the time or whatever yeah she struggled a lot with her sexuality in her own words she was sleeping with men trying to like cure herself of homosexuality and like there is not even like an ounce of a hint at that whatsoever in the film nothing right the the closest it comes is he says we both know i'm not what you want yep that's the closest whiff you get of anything like that. I'm not even going to count that because that was in the context of I love you, but we both know I can't marry you. And I definitely do not think that was a hint to her homosexuality. I think it was a fact to her being depressed and being a communist and being too intent. Like it was more of, I don't know. I, yeah. To me, that was portrayed as a personality slash compatibility complex. Yeah, I think that's how it was meant to come off to the audience. But I could see him being like, oh, well, that's... Here's my justification. Yeah, that's my head nod to that. Sure. If if you want to give it the most generous reading possible, I think you could do that. And it's not impossible that at least in passing that was there. And whatever. I'm, I'm not saying that the film needs to be about her sexuality or anything like that. It's just, here's the thing. For how bloated and overdone and overwrought and long all the courtroom stuff is in the last hour of the film... That's what pissed me off about the portrayal of these women is it's like, it feels like the editor took a hacksaw to their story from before and Emily Blunt gets like a super quick exposition on her three husbands that she had before Oppenheimer, just like in a sentence. Mm -hmm. She was royalty. She was a German princess, essentially, and had all this complex history. She was a biologist. She was a botanist. She jumped around, studied at a lot of different colleges in Europe, all over the place. Her marriage history is pretty interesting, too. Her second husband died in the trenches in the Spanish Civil War. And it's, again, it's mentioned, but it's just done in very quick exposition where, again, I get it. It's not a film about her. But had this film been two hours, I would have been like, okay, they didn't have time. That's fine. They did it quickly. Right. With the extra hour at the end, I'm like, you could have done a little more with these characters so that by the time she does her turn... To vindictive, I'm going to turn my bitchiness against this this prosecutor. You would have seen more from her and cared more that she was making that turn. Where again, the turn from drunk bitch to vindictive bitch is like not that much of a turn. And again, pretty one dimensional. So I don't know. I do think in general, I think it's pretty well known that Christopher Nolan just doesn't write women that well. That's not one of his strengths. As Natalie Wynn from the ContraPoints YouTube channel put it, Christopher Nolan sees women as the dragons of chaos. I was saying that's way too true. And I think the book gives a lot of detail about Kitty Oppenheimer's life. And 
a lot of background and that she was also an incredibly troubled person. And the film just barely hints at the issues they had with their children. We see him ask for them to take Peter, who's their oldest, which they don't even get names in this. No, he did say Peter. He say Peter. Oh, okay. But did they talk about Tony? Their daughter? Not the... I don't think Tony gets a name. No. Yeah, she's a girl. It doesn't matter. It's a Christopher Nolan movie. They're not going to name all the women. <laughs> you can't. Yeah, I already named two of them. Come on. <laughs> So Peter spends time with Chevaliers for, uh, I think it's three months. Well, they go to Oppenheimer's ranch in New Mexico, right? But then Tony, their daughter, is born. And at one point, he literally, like that, that line that says, do you want to adopt? That is a reference to shortly after she was born, he hands Tony over to this woman and is like, hey, can you take care of her? Because my wife can't handle it. And he says, would you like this baby? Because I don't think that my wife and I can provide her the love that she needs. Maybe I should just give this child up. And the, and the woman is like, no, man, I'm not doing that. Like, this is your baby. And like, I can see that you care. And it all kind of maybe a little bit worked out. But Kitty was also a very complicated person and nolan is not good with complicated characters in general but especially with complicated women and i think emily blunt does a good job of interpreting that because even in those scenes where uh you know he comes home and he's been accepted to the manhattan project or whatever and she's drunk with peter wailing in the background shouldn't you go to him the face she gets when she pushes him away. I have been going to him all fucking day. And I was like, girl, I get you. I get you. I've had that baby. I know what you mean. So, like, not drunk, but I, like, my wife, until recently, not that she didn't work, but she usually worked from home in part because that's just the nature of the job that she had, but also to be there for the kids. I have come home. <laughs> to that exact table again she's not drunk sitting at the table but like come in and like children screaming upstairs and she's dead ass quiet looking really pissed off and i'm like oh i'm gonna not talk right now yep. about anything <laughs> and just find out what what you need honey and the answer is fucking nothing just like there's no answer there's no answer to that riddle i was like that's some real ass shit that i'm watching on screen there uh-huh. I could definitely relate. Yeah. Uh, I've I've seen that moment before. And I don't hold any of it on the actors. Yeah, no, it's all in the script. Yeah, and I think all of them read this book. So I think they sell as much as they can of the complicated nature of the characters in their acting. But it's like, it's your job to follow the script, right? You can't, you know, you can go to the source material in your head for motivation and for stuff like that but you know you're gonna go with the lines you're gonna go with the script and what the scene shows so it, the problem's in the writing right exactly i think there are some directors and for some reason christopher nolan has gotten to this echelon with actors where they'll kind of just do whatever christopher nolan wants yes yes definitely you know, Wes Anderson is definitely somebody who has this reputation. 
Edward Norton has said that it costs him money to be in a Wes Anderson movie, but you do big ticket money movies to pay for your Wes Anderson habit. Right, right. Essentially. And apparently Christopher Nolan is getting to that level because Matt Damon was supposed to be on a break from acting. And he told his wife, I'm going on a break unless Christopher Nolan calls. And then, yes, I remember this. I remember this interview. There's that. There are things that I'm like, Florence Pugh is a pretty outspoken person most of the time. As we saw from the behind the scenes drama of Don't Worry, Darling, she's not afraid to speak her mind about issues that she might have. Because she's a fucking queen. That's, that's yeah, why. Yeah, exactly. I'm a little surprised that she isn't like, why isn't this character gayer? This character should be at least like 200% more gay. Can we do 50? And maybe she did. Right. Maybe they edited that out, right? Maybe there was more footage. I don't know. Or maybe Nolan was just like, sorry, but you're not actually the focus. Like, I don't know how that conversation went if it happened. But I also think that sometimes people will not give Christopher Nolan the grief because they like being in Christopher Nolan movies. And I'm sure it's got to be a pretty cool onset right. onset experience, especially with all like the technical practical effects and things like that. That's got to be really fun. I know it sounds like I'm being uh, reductive with that, but like, no, it's got to be an enjoyable work experience for this many people to, to be on board. And Robert Downey Jr. Saying he's always wanted to be team Nolan, you know? So he's almost all of a sudden, getting this actor's director reputation. And on the one hand, that's really strange to me Mm -hmm. because I've seen nothing in any of his other work that would lead me to think that that's the case. However, in this movie, I will say just as a blanket statement on the acting, the performances in this movie are so fucking good that it makes me unsure if the rest of the movie sucks or not. I I have a hard time being objective about this movie because I like the performances so much. Right. And like, we can't even really get into so many of these performances because there's so, there's fucking 20 people in here who all deserve their own recognition from like the hateable character of Edward Teller and Benny Softie. Whose eyebrows were close to real life, but not quite close enough. Because if you see pictures (laughs) of Edward Teller, I'm like, dude, that is, you are wearing like a wig on each eyebrow. Like that is crazy. (laughs) Like, why are you wearing Isaac Asimov sideburns over your eyes? Right. I don't understand how no woman or anybody ever just like said, let's just trim those up just a touch. But Matthew Modine is a Vennever Bush. Oh, yeah. I really like Jack Quaid as Richard Feynman. The fucking Hobie Doyle's in this. Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you know what his character's name is? No. Senate aide. Senate aide. <laughs> I was like, damn, he doesn't even get a name. Also, Kenneth Branagh is in this as Niels Bohr. But the two I wanted to take the time to call out as these small bits are Alden Ehrenreich as the Senate aide and Remy Malek as David Hill, where... Alden Ehrenreich is just this kind of like, he is the audience surrogate, I think. Yeah, he's he's a device. Right. And and he does perfect. I, I was so glad to see him. I was like, oh, this is going to be good. Yeah, he's not unbiased as a character. Nope. He's got his own opinions on what's going on. Thank God. What was it you said about Borden? Why get caught holding the knife yourself? I'm beginning to think if Borden was holding the knife for you. 
And then Remy Malek, we get to see him. He gets like shot down by Oppenheimer every fucking time we see them together. But then he is the, not savior, but like the truth teller. He's like the whistleblower almost. Who comes to this Senate hearing and is like, yeah, this guy, fuck this guy. And I was like, thank you. The views I have to express are my own, but I believe that much I have to say will help to indicate why most of the scientists in this country would prefer to see Mr. Straws completely out of government. You're, you're referring to the hostility of certain scientists directed toward Mr. Straws because of his commitment to security, as demonstrated in the Oppenheimer affair? No. Because of the personal vindictiveness he demonstrated against Dr. Oppenheimer. Order. Order. Rami Malek is such an interesting actor because maybe it's just his mannerisms. Maybe it is the roles that he chooses or how he plays them. But typically we, we will get one of two Rami Maleks. We get sinister Rami Malek and noble Rami Malek. <laughs> There's not a whole lot of variation. Which is he in Bohemian Rhapsody? Uh, in Bohemian Rhapsody, he's mostly noble Rami Malek. Okay, okay. They try to give a, a certain amount of nobility to the character, but there are some moments of, like, a little bit more sinister. And maybe it's because we all first met him in Mr. Robot and nobody could really tell where he was coming from. God, I hated that show. But through this whole movie, you're like, oh, which, like, you can never quite tell which Rami you're going to get. Yeah, where where's he going to go? And it almost kind of depends on which way Rami Malek tilts his head. <laughs> oh, it's so true. Not to JFK it, but when he's like a little back into the left so that his like jawbone points upwards on the one side, then it's like, oh, that's his, that's him being noble Rami Malek. When he like kind of tilts it down. Then he's pointing his head more downwards. That's sinister Rami Malek. It's the strangest tick that I've noticed with Rami Malek, but I'm I'm always happy to see him. He always gives a good performance. Yeah, he's he's doing something. He doesn't phone it in, but a lot of times you're just like, holy shit, it's Rami Malek. It's one of those things. And I'm like, which one am I going to get? I don't know. Most of the performances in this are great. I think for me, the down-home one is Matt Damon. He's holding this as the most normal person in all of it <laughs> he he is average guy almost in this reacting to being around all these physicists and he does a fine job as matt damon does in all of his work he at least does fine fits the character well i thought grumpy matt damon does a good job yes exactly but i think you know if you don't have these performances then the movie absolutely falls apart and so I will give credit to Nolan for that and that he is coordinating all of these vastly different personalities to create something cohesive. And that does really work. Who played the other woman in the lab? Oh. I don't know her name. Oh, the one that talks about her reproductive system? Yeah. We just don't know what it might do to the female reproductive Your system. Your reproductive system is more exposed than mine. Was it Olivia Thurlby, Lily Horning? I had a conversation with a friend where I found myself like oddly going to bat for this movie because she was like, I don't know. I'm, I'm not really interested to see it because 
I I read an article about how it like omits all the women who worked at Los Alamos and like you get like no screen time of them whatsoever. And I was like, eh. yeah, that's not inaccurate, but it's also like not super accurate. There is a woman character that I felt was kind of like there to be an amalgamation or like yeah. some kind of representation. But like there's so many people coming back and forth across the screen that get very short shrift throughout this movie that like I was kind of impressed that they included the thing where she was like, they asked me if I could type. That was kind of like the the head nod to that. Yeah. And talking about how they employed the wives. Yeah. And, and employed the wives. And but unless it was somebody who had a lot of direct interaction specifically with Oppenheimer, most of these people get fairly limited screen exposure because i think this movie has blinders on Mm. and cuts out pretty much everything that isn't directly related to oppenheimer's personal interactions yeah which if the idea is that you're showing his subjective perspective then that somewhat makes sense Mm -hmm. it does again it's a choice that they committed to and i understand it i don't know if i loved it but like i think going into this movie you really have to understand that it's a movie that's specifically about this dude and it's not about the building of the bomb or the ramifications of the bomb. Right. It's not necessarily the movie that you want it to be. Yeah. So this movie does have the blinders on if, if it's not directly related to Oppenheimer, it's not going to depict it. This movie is really narrow in its focus for a movie that wants to be a big sprawling epic. Agreed. It wants to be a big sprawling epic, but it's just, it isn't concerned with a whole lot because there are things that are relevant to the discussion of the atomic bomb that this movie omits entirely, if not borderline misleads you about. Yeah. They talk about how desolate and uninhabited and like, oh my God, like this is the perfect plot. It's manifest destiny, like arriving on the shores of the new world kind of shit. Like, holy shit, there's nobody here. This is great. Uh, except for those people, we'll just move Except them. for the Indians. Yeah, we'll we'll move those guys out of the way. But no, this this cuts out the discussion of the downwinders, which were American citizens who got really, really badly screwed by the atomic testing on American soil. Well, this testing resulted in 46 U.S. states plus Mexico and Canada being rained on with nuclear fallout yeah so like this is something that affected the whole continent and they just kind of are like shh shh don't talk about it it's fine well and there were ranches and settlements and communities that are near sometimes within a few miles of where they actually did the trinity test and in those locations places like roswell where in the following months, they had like 30 some infant deaths in just one town. You know, there's a long history of childhood cancer and adult brain tumors and leukemia. Just the, the whole host of medical problems because it gets into the groundwater. Kids born without eyes is one example I read. Yeah, but I'll defend the movie a little bit here in that I don't think it's inaccurate to portray Oppenheimer and Groves being like, there's nothing here for 40 miles. Like, that's probably what they said, right? And the fallout stuff is not necessarily something they knew about in detail at the time. And 
realized later came out later. So like not not within the immediate scope of this film, that part. I would say that it's not within the immediate scope of this movie. Because again, if you go into this movie with the expectation that it's going to be about anything other than J. Robert Oppenheimer, you'll find it jarring, if not disappointing. But I feel like this movie probably could, like you said, Dan, with its runtime, been about more or included more in the discussion. We could have seen a 30-second moment of, there's a great article in the Washington Post that was published July 29th by Karen Brouillard and Samuel Gilbert about the downwinders that has multiple examples of people who were awake during that test and saw it happen and were like, what's going on here? And you could have had that brief moment of the fallout happening and they just really, it's portrayed so for lack of a better word, positively? Like, it's just a win. It's just a win. Well, it's myopic, but we've identified that this is very subjectively from Oppenheimer's point of view. Yes. So if it's accurate to say that Oppenheimer didn't have to go to anyone's ranch and bulldoze their house or kick them out, some other soldiers were doing that shit. Like, he's the director. He's too big for that. And he had plenty of other things on his mind about this test other than, oh, no, we're going to displace some ranchers or some Hispanic people. I'm saying from his perspective. Right. right so, right, like, right. if that's the perspective, then it kind of makes sense that they don't show it. I agree with you that it's easy to do a 30 second montage of some soldiers shooting some cows and some people basically being shooed off and handed like a hundred dollars and then a house being bulldozed. Like, you can definitely show that pretty quickly. The question is, how much are you committing to the whole subjective aspect of Oppenheimer's internal thoughts and what he experienced in Los Alamos? I think whether you agree with that or not, it kind of fits with the depiction in the film. But you think it's missing that, like you would have liked to see some of that in the film. It feels like that was the arbitrary line that Nolan drew in this, in that you could have had a wider perspective because he chooses to show a wider perspective in several other areas, but not in this one. And yeah, that's a creative choice that I'm not sure I agree with. Credit where it's due, author and journalist Alyssa Lynn Valdez went on a fairly long Twitter screed against the movie for omitting this very thing, which seems to have been sort of what kicked off larger news coverage like in the washington post and things like that yeah probably but again i think you know the movie obviously doesn't get embroiled in in this topic at all and i think it could probably use it but it's also i don't think that in all cases the that's not the story i was telling is justifiable necessarily a good defense really because it's you who is choosing to tell the story that way it's kind of like the uh the good place meme where it's just like, you do see how that's worse, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, like, I get it. It's not the story that they're telling, but it could have been if you gave a shit. Another thing that I don't think it examines enough, although I think it thinks it does, is the impact of the nuclear bombs that we did drop in war. Yeah. I had very mixed feelings about this. I felt my feelings were not mixed. 
<laughs> on that front. Well, I fell asleep a couple of times my first time, so like yeah. I missed. <laughs> You're like fair. maybe they showed it, and I was just sleeping. They did show some things that I fell asleep for, so which I did again. I was awake the whole time. My second viewing, so I did watch this entire film, and after my first viewing, I thought they really didn't show anything. Other than the radio announcement of the the actual bombings, when the bombs were dropped in Japan. And then I realized that they show the scientist film reel from the bombings. But the perspective the whole time is showing you Oppenheimer's face. And he's mostly turning away from the footage in horror. And you can see the light reflecting. So you know they're seeing images of those cities having been leveled. They just don't show it on screen. So. Right, and those the lines that they say in the film are straight up quotes from the book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, hundred percent. Which is cheap, I feel. We just came off of, you know, doing Judgment at Nuremberg, where in the '60s they showed footage in this movie of the actual Holocaust victims and bodies being buried with bulldozers and shit. That's something that you can show in this movie. It's R-rated anyway. And I think that it's letting Oppenheimer and everybody off the hook, not showing that in real life. We get him stepping on a prop ash person, but that's not enough. Well, again, they're, they're leaning. I don't agree with all these choices either, but I'm just admitting that they are artistic subjective choices. I think he leaned into the subjective aspect. So that scene where he gives the speech, which again, the speech is verbatim out of history, basically, mm-hmm. and the people cheering. I'm very conflicted about that scene. It's too soon to. It's too soon to determine what the results of the bombing are. But I'll bet the Japanese didn't like it. I liked some of the subtle things that they did. I thought the isolation of the sound design was really cool. Like in that scene, it really worked for me because it's showing his mental state where you can hear the noises that the people are making stomping around and his breathing, but you can't hear them yelling at times. Like they, they managed to isolate all these sounds or create them in post or whatever they did. To show kind of this, almost like a Saving Private Ryan on the beach effect that Tom Hanks has after the bomb goes off. Mm -hmm. It's kind of that effect from an emotional perspective. And then they have obviously these, I wouldn't call them hallucinations because I don't think they're literally what that is. But it's a metaphorical depiction of his emotional state in where you see people waving American flags and laughing, but then you see people crying when he walks outside, the guy puking, that's literally from the book. He really did see one of the physicists outside puking his guts out and, you know, some people crying and stuff. I think also Nolan, man, I hate to like call him narcissistic here because I think that's too harsh. It's not like I don't think he was thinking about the effects of the bombs, but the girl who you see in the front whose skin is peeling off her face, that's Christopher Nolan's daughter. And he specifically commented that he cast her in that role because he needed it to feel like more personal for him. He needed to really like feel what Oppenheimer was feeling. 
And I'm like, all right, I can kind of see that, but it's a little bit cringy because it's like, what do you mean you need to feel this? Like, what about these 220,000 people that they just killed? What about the families that are interned in internment camps in California who are thinking about their family members in Japan who were just killed? Like, come on. That's a very, I feel like there's blood on my hands comment, almost. Yeah, but I mean, even if you're keeping it completely subjective with Oppenheimer's point of view, Mm -hmm. you show Oppenheimer the fucking film reel. Did he turn away from it in real life? Like, how much of the film reel did he watch? He's in the room, and you see his reaction to it, and him, like, look away from the thing. I think that's bullshit to be like, oh, well, we're going to show it to him. You don't have to see it. I have a problem with that because that's an opportunity to bring the real life impact into this film that otherwise has very little truck with it. Yep. I get that. And I agree in that it is a choice that Nolan makes and it is a very specific choice to not include any of that footage. And we only see the reaction of Oppenheimer and the other scientists to the work that they've done to create this weapon of mass destruction. I think he is intending it to come across as from these people's perspective, because we've seen everything else from these people's perspective. And having that moment, this is how it impacted them, which is an incredibly selfish, in certain ways, way to look at things. And it definitely lets your viewers off the hook in a certain way. We see this there's no other way to put it, this gorgeously shot reimagining of what it looks like when an atomic bomb goes off and we see all of these people cheering it as a victory. And we don't really, really see the impact that it then has on actual real humans. So I get why he made the choice. I don't think that it was the right choice because I think that it's a cop-out a justifiable cop-out. If you show people the results of this bomb on humans, it's going to have much more impact on the viewers of the film than just seeing Oppenheimer's reaction, which I, I, to me, it just feels like so much justification of like, oh, well, we've all seen those pictures of the little girl running down the street after the atomic bomb drop and all that. If you want to see something that does this much better... The documentary does this way better and coming mm-hmm. directly out of the mouths of the scientists. First of all, they show some of the footage and some of it, some of the close ups are literally bleached out skeletons of people like on the ground. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, it's horrible. I, I, I didn't even know that the A bomb like did that because that's mm-hmm. just so like Terminator level apocalyptic, like, but in real life, which is like yeah. really, really horrifying and jarring. And the scientists, I'm going to forget exactly whose quote this is, but again, these are a lot of people in the 80s who worked directly with Oppenheimer and were there. And almost all of them, except for one physicist, were at Los Alamos and part of this project. Why did the bomb get dropped on people at Hiroshima? I would say it's almost inevitable that it would have happened simply because all the bureaucratic apparatus existed by that time to do it. The Air Force was ready and waiting. They had been prepared big airfields in the island of Tinian in the Pacific from which you could operate. The whole machinery was ready. The president would have had 
to be a man of iron will in order to put a stop to it. Because again, this was a race to beat the Nazis to build the bomb. Right. They knew the Nazis were going to build this bomb, and they knew what kind of scruples the Nazis were going to have about using it against us, against England, against whoever. Yeah. And so that was the mission. And once you get these billions of dollars and all those gears going, of course, that wasn't going to just stop once we won the war in Europe. Now this weapon was going to be available to end the war in the Pacific. And then you get into all these moral ramifications or whether that's justified or not. As Oppenheimer addresses in the film when he says that's not how weapons work. Yeah, right. It was nobody's fault that the bomb was dropped. As usual, the reason it was dropped was just that nobody had the courage or the foresight to say no. Certainly not Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer gave his consent in a certain sense. He was on a committee which advised the Secretary of War, and that committee did not take any kind of a stand against dropping the bomb. And they were on such a three-year period of trying to accomplish this mission and putting everything they had into this race to like end this world war that their first initial comments when they heard the bombs were dropped on Japan were... The announcement that of Hiroshima, I think I was in the hall right outside my brother's office and it came over the sort of loudspeaker that went through, was distributed throughout. Um, that the bomb had been dropped and that it had devastated, and that it took, the first reaction was, Thank God it wasn't a dud. But before the whole sentence of the broadcast was finished, when Sutton got this horror of all the people that had been killed. Uh, and I don't know why, up to then, I don't think we'd really, I'd really thought of all those flattened people. Um, we had talked often about having a demonstration where there weren't people, maybe on the mainland so that the military would see it but where they weren't people. And then that, they had, that they'd actually dropped it on a place where all those people were, and the image of those people, which came before any pictures of it, uh, really was pretty awful. Yeah, I think it's a huge disservice to the reality of what happened and the consequences of the Manhattan Project to not give perspective. And I, I think there's a scale there there's a way to do it even without showing graphic footage of the aftermath of the bomb because they do it at the end of the film. They do it to project Oppenheimer's fears that we were going to get into an arms race and build H-bombs everywhere and eventually it was going to lead to World War III and we were going to destroy the planet. And you see the effect of atomic bombs going off on the Earth. And to me, my initial thought when I saw that was... You could have shown the very clear silhouette of the Japanese Isles in a scene and shown the bombs dropping exactly where they dropped in Japan without showing people, without showing the detail, but everyone watching that on screen can use their imagination to see what's happening and to see the fire in the atmosphere and to know that these gigantic bombs that you could literally see from space were dropped on cities full of people. I think they chose to go the really safe route, and I think that does do a disservice to the hundreds of thousands of people who died in these events. 
and to the impact that it had on even if we're going the interpersonal route of, of the people we're talking about in this film, we are doing a disservice to how dramatically this affected them. One of the big running themes through this is them demanding to know, when did you develop scruples about the H-bomb? And it's like, obviously, according to the film narrative, it's as he's seeing the human cost of these things. And it never commits to that. And that's frustrating as a viewer. It's frustrating to see that because it was a huge part of the man Oppenheimer's reservations about continuing this kind of thing. Because yeah. initially he's developing this against the Nazis, not Japan. And then the Nazis, you know, Hitler kills himself. World War Two on the VE Day. Yeah, the, the war in Europe ends. Right. But, you know, we see this grasping at straws to justify their continued efforts, which is totally understandable as humans. They put all this time and energy into creating this thing to try to save the world as they know it. And it's real hard to let go of that. And I think Nolan does not do justice to the emotional complexity that not just Oppenheimer, because he fails at portraying the emotional complexity that Oppenheimer felt about this, in my opinion, but everyone else, everyone else had thoughts about it. And he opts for the easy simplicity rather than diving deeper. And I think that's one of the biggest failings of this movie. Yeah, and even the third act really focuses on the persecution of Oppenheimer and his, you know, cancellation or whatever you want to call it, or his moral prosecution as a communist or communist sympathizer, while really not showing the grand scheme of the fact that he spent the rest of his life until he died in 1968 of laryngeal or throat cancer. He smoked four to five packs a day, by the way. Big smoker. Of him working as hard as he could to try and get H-bomb production to stop, to try and get everyone to sign unilateral treaties, to try and get everyone to not turn the world into World War III, which has not happened yet, but he was unsuccessful in convincing the Truman administration to not pursue this route, and it haunted him for the rest of his days, I think. And I think that's the failing of the third act of the film, is that we we are then focused on Louis Strauss and his bullshit, rather than the fact that Oppenheimer makes this huge contribution to scientific discovery, right? And then is pushed to make this weapon of mass destruction. And then when he's like, this isn't what I meant, oh God, and he's trying to get people to listen to him about the costs of these things he's brushed aside and buried and it's it's not about his moral qualms with this that's almost like in the background of this movie as like oh did he really or did he not like those that's what's in question what we're really focused on at the end of the movie is how lewis strauss really fucked oppenheimer over and i'm like okay that's not emotionally resonant with me, personally. I agree. I 
did not care about that plot line very much. I love Robert Downey Jr.'s performance, but I did oh, not totes. understand the totes. level of importance that they were trying to put on that. There's a line in that scene that, I mean, maybe this is from the book as well. I haven't read it. You guys have. But there's a, a line in that scene where I can't remember if it's Oppenheimer or if it's Kitty who says, Is anyone ever going to tell the truth about what's happening here? And it's almost like the closing of Inglorious Bastards when Brad Pitt looks at the camera and goes, I think this is my masterpiece. That sounds like the director like being a little self-referential, like, don't worry, Oppie, I'm going to tell what really happened yeah. here. I'll yeah. tell the truth about it. So if this movie is trying to tell the truth about the real machinations that went into the downfall of J. Robert Oppenheimer from a political standpoint that most people don't know about then I can understand that focus being put on the, the straws dynamic. Mm -hmm. I don't know the real history, so I don't know how accurate all of that stuff is. I don't know if we actually know, or if this much like the Mozart Salieri thing is bullshit, but makes a good story. Or those scenes between Oppenheimer and uh, Gene at the very end where it's just the two of them alone in a room together. There's no record of what the two of them said or whether Oppenheimer told her this is the last time I'm, I'm I won't answer your calls anymore. Like none of that. Or if they actually slept together in that hotel room, apparently. Is well. uh, I mean, he spent the night with her and walked out at seven in the morning. The FBI tailed them. That is confirmed. So I somehow doubt they didn't have sex, but sure. They claimed they didn't, or he claimed they didn't, but whatever. Oppenheimer was a horny bitch. I don't believe yeah. him. Yeah. And he was married. No shit. He claimed that he didn't. <laughs> yeah. And he did cheat on his wife. A lot. A lot. There, there was a whole lot of stuff going on there, but we see a lot of misdirection in this, and it's it can be really frustrating because at times it feels like the movie is working against itself, and it's like, why are you bringing this part up? This isn't in line with the story we're telling. This isn't conducive to anything. It just makes things more confused and not in an enriching way, you know? Now that you bring up that last scene with Oppie and Jean and the oversimplification of things, I think this movie does elect to depict a few things in a certain light that might not necessarily be the way that they happened, but there's at least question about it. And this movie depicts them as being without question. Most notably, I think, is Jean Tatlock's suicide. Right. It kind of tries to play both sides of did Pash have her killed or did she kill herself? I never got the Pash had her killed aspect to the movie's depiction. There's a brief moment when she has her head in the bath where you see a black hand. You see two black gloves. Mm -hmm. Yep. Pushing her head mm. down into the water and then pulling back. And it, it is seconds long. And the book talks about it. And the book gives a lot of interesting information about why that might have been the option. And and that's one of the reasons why the book brings up that comment from Pash that Leslie Groves tells Oppenheimer about. When Pash first heard about Lominitz, he told the FBI he was going to kidnap him, take him out on a boat, and interrogate him in the Russian manner. That is very much in direct reference to what happened to Gene, in that this is entirely a possibility that Pash could have just have her murdered 
Great chilling turn by Casey Affleck, though. Right. I mean, he's Casey Affleck. And I think in the way it's shown, and if we stick to the idea that the color scenes are the subjective view of Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer wasn't there when she died. Mm-hmm. And so what we could be seeing is him thinking about what happened to her and him thinking about the possibility mm-hmm. that she was killed, which in real life, we'll never get the answer to that because it was nope. a plausible suicide and also a plausible homicide. It was really, if you look at the evidence, you look at what doctors have said in the future, they were like, if you were trying to kill someone to make it look like an accident, or sorry, not necessarily an accident, but a suicide, this is the way to do it. But this doesn't necessarily prove that it wasn't a suicide. So Yeah, it, it was... The perfect murder in ambiguity. If it was a murder. Well, didn't her dad, like, go over and burn a bunch of shit right after? He did. Yep. So, like, that's weird, too, maybe. Her dad found her, yes, and he burns stuff. And I believe he calls Oppenheimer before he calls the police or medical care or whatever. And if you think about the her reputation and the secret or not so secret things about her life he could have been burning love letters that she had with women he could have been burning all of her communist related paperwork he could have been just doing things to protect her reputation because no doubt the fbi was going to go through her apartment right so the other big thing that is in question in this is the scene where oppenheimer attempts to poison his professor Mm -hmm. mentor supposedly it really is vague in the film and much more specific in the book. And in the book, Oppenheimer doesn't go and like take that apple and throw it away. No, no, he poisons the apple and then leaves for a couple of weeks and is like, eh, he might be dead. He might not. And then proceeds to get a lot of therapy is what we would think of it now. Analysis is what they called it then afterwards in order to maintain his place at Cambridge. He got his degree at Cambridge and then went on and did postgraduate study at all these different European universities. But in order to get his degree at Cambridge, he had to go through a bunch of psychiatric treatments at the time. Right. Well, they didn't expel him nor press criminal charges because his father got involved. We don't know if that involved money or not. And his his dad was quite wealthy. Oh, yeah. They were wealthy. So coming from a rich family, who knows? All three of us have read the article by Oppenheimer's grandson saying that it was the one thing in the film that he wasn't happy about. And he felt that all of his friends and enemies that he talked to said that incident never happened. But also, if you look at the history, Oppenheimer admitted that it happened in some ways. It's just the details of like, was it cyanide? Was it something else? Could this have killed him? Or was it potentially just going to make him really sick? I think those things are somewhat debatable. Right. I think if anything... I can see his problem with it being depicted so concretely in the film, as opposed to being left a little more ambiguous. I I could see that argument. But again, it's his grandson. So obviously, he's going to be biased towards not wanting to make his grandpa look bad. And I think Oppenheimer, in the book at least, it's one of the most poignant moments to describe how out of sync Oppenheimer was with reality at this point. Because in the years to follow, he talks about it as though it's currently happening to his friends at the time. Like he's in Switzerland or France or something on vacation or on break from school and is telling them that this happened. And they're all like, what are you talking about? And then they find out it happened years earlier. Like, I think that Nolan chooses this point because it's a great drama moment, right? Mm -hmm. 
but it also was like, forgive my blunt speech here. It's also the craziest that Oppenheimer got. He only attempts to kill one person in the course of his career at college, but there were several other incidents of like, he was not in his right mind. He was going through some severe psychiatric difficulties and, and continued to experience those throughout the rest of his life, which isn't unusual in his early to mid twenties. That stuff kind of tapered off as he learned and dedicated himself to figuring out how to handle these deep emotional issues that he was going through. I think that it feels cheap. And I didn't like how it's portrayed because it's such a complicated thing for Oppenheimer. And now it's time for the breakdown. It's the point in our show when we ask ourselves our three questions. What was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Katie, what are your thoughts? I think the objective of this film from Christopher Nolan's perspective, which I think is the main perspective we should be looking at for this, is to tell a very specific story about a very specific historical figure and also pull in all of these threads of complex historical issues like the development of the atomic bomb, communism, which we didn't get a chance to touch on. We will in a future episode, I promise, but it was just too big a topic for this episode. The political pushback on people and how these kinds of small disagreements between individuals can then lead to huge consequences. So I think Nolan is really going for a lot in this and also trying to make this super like beautiful movie about the creation of the atomic bomb, which isn't necessarily in conflict with these other ideas, but in the end, I think it is in conflict. I don't think that he is able to reconcile all of these different factors together. So I don't think it's on target. I think there's a lot to enjoy about this movie. There's a lot of reasons to go see it. There's a lot of reasons to say I liked it or I didn't like it. There's a lot of complex shit going on here. And I think the best thing it does is make you ask questions about what is the deeper truth here? And how did Oppenheimer actually feel? And who were all of these people? Because we get snapshot after snapshot after snapshot of incredibly influential people in science throughout the 40s and on. And this movie is totally like a Google moment of like, oh, who is this person playing? Who is this person playing? What did they contribute? There's a lot going on here. But I think Nolan misses his target, which isn't unusual for him in my thoughts, of glorifying Oppenheimer as some kind of superior human because he's so fucking smart. Nolan, in my opinion, really fails when he digs into like, well, he understood all of this stuff, so obviously he's a great person. I'm like, that doesn't mean shit, my dude. Doesn't mean shit. Oppenheimer can be a great person or a terrible person, and his understanding of physics 
and the world at large has nothing to do with that. And Oppenheimer was obviously an incredibly complex person. And I think the biggest thing that Nolan fails at is showing those layers of complexity. He tries. He tries so hard. But there just isn't enough, I think. We don't get to see Oppenheimer in enough different emotional states to really appreciate him as a full human being and not as this caricature that Nolan wants to sell us. And that's really disappointing because having read the book and knowing a certain amount about this whole situation, there's a lot going on here and we don't ever really get to see Oppenheimer as a human being. We get to see him as this intellectual god, as Prometheus. And I think that, for me, was the point where it all fell apart, is that Nolan took that quote in the beginning of the book about Prometheus stole the fire from the gods. I was like, you know, people are just actual humans. They're not actually gods because Prometheus is a fucking demigod and Oppenheimer is not that. He's just a person. And in his attempts to tell this story, Nolan really falls down on the idea of portraying Oppenheimer as a regular person. And that sucks. So I don't think it's on target, unfortunately. Although there is a lot to enjoy about the film. That doesn't mean it's bad. It just means I don't think it gets to the place that Nolan is trying to reach. Did I like it? I still don't fucking know, man. I watched this movie <laughs> twice. I have done 35 hours, like a whole ass work week worth of effort on this shit, not including our record right now. And I still don't know if I fucking liked it because it's just so wishy-washy and that frustrates the hell out of me nolan leans so hard into i'm making an artistic biopic that's like i don't could you just make a movie about about something and dive into that rather than focusing on the idea of what you're making and i think that's the thing that frustrates me the most and i think that's illustrated most accurately by the moments that we get to see between Oppenheimer and Einstein. We get a couple of moments between the two of them, and it is so unreal. People do not talk that way. I was like, did Aaron Sorkin have a co-writing credit on this? Because Jesus, everything is so fast-paced and quick cuts, and it, it just doesn't come across as genuine. and. For something like this, I think you need that genuineness. And it, I didn't not like it, right? <laughs> I watched it today and I got out and was like, hmm, well, that was a movie. That was fine. But for how much money they spent on this, for the amazing artistic contributions that went into this, not just from Christopher Nolan, but from the acting the sound design, the score, the cinematography, just the individuals who literally put this movie together. Everybody worked their best on this, and it just feels so fake and hollow, and that was so frustrating. 
So I just don't know. I felt that way when I left the theater today. I was like, I don't know if I like this movie or not. I just feel like it was fine. I really loved the book. <laughs> Thought that was fascinating and interesting and gives us a huge perspective on who Oppenheimer was, all of his relationships, all these different people. Like, there's so much going on. And the movie's just bland. So, I don't know if I liked it. This is, I think, the first time I've ever not been able to say definitively how I felt about it, but I just don't know. Well, it sounds like you loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, are you ready? What are your thoughts? You're not ready. <laughs> he's, he's not ready. Doing the Liam pause. This is a complicated one, obviously. For those listening at home right now, this recording's already getting close to three hours, and we had to leave plenty of stuff on the table. This is a complex subject. And a complex film, despite its failings. Christopher Nolan's mostly on the record on this. He was making his first biopic. He is a director with a big reputation, and he knows that. And I think he wanted to do justice to a famous slash infamous and complicated person who had a huge impact on modern history. A lot of our military and foreign policy stems from this group of people who did what they did at Los Alamos and to a certain extent helped end World War II. Again, a fact that is historically debatable. It's another thing we didn't really have time to get into, but we will some other time. Was it on target? I feel like it was 50-50. I definitely give Nolan an A for effort. I understand what he was trying to do. And I well, do that's think- almost more insulting than what I said. <laughs> well, no, I'm saying- I. <laughs> You got an A for effort, buddy. That's like a grandma. Like, oh, sweetie, you're doing your best. <laughs> I get what you're saying. I just think it's funny. I need to rephrase myself. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's funny. You're trying so hard. I appreciate the effort that he put in. Clearly, again, like I said before, I do think he's a person who really cares about the filmmaking, really cares about film, seems to have really good relationship with the people he works with and his actors. and. That shows, as I highlighted before, I disagree artistically with some of Nolan's choices where he gets into Oppenheimer's head, but it can be a really myopic view at times. And I think while the name of the film is Oppenheimer and it's clearly subjectively about him, I think the story is missing a lot of its impact by not showing more of the effect on the other scientists and the bigger picture of this moral conundrum that they got into by the time that they had actually completed this gadget in 1945. Like Katie said, and quoted the book well, this is a very complex man and scientist and the father of the atom bomb. I mean, talk about hyperbole, but it's true. Teller's the father of the H-bomb, but that title is not as well known and not as famous. You know, there's a reason why Oppenheimer is famous. So this was a difficult task. Again, I, I saw many times where, I mean, I'm not a filmmaker, but I, if I put myself in Nolan's shoes, I would have gone a different direction. The thing that sticks out to me the most and the most egregious misstep is not showing some of the impact of these bombs when they were dropped on Japan. I talked about it before on a spectrum. You can do it more or less graphically, 
but I think it was a little bit of a cop out the way he did it, although I understand what he was going for. The sound design was really interesting in that speech scene, and it did give me a lot to think about. I just think it fell short of really giving you that impact. This is just a guess, but I get the feeling that Christopher Nolan has maybe been called a genius filmmaker, auteur, artist a little too early by a little too many people. And I'm not trying to deny his talent. What I'm saying is I think sometimes he lets it go a little bit to his head and it happened maybe a little too soon in his career. And I don't know what we're going to get in the next three, four films out of Christopher Nolan, but I've seen him at his worst with Tenet and I've seen him at his best with some of his greater films that I mentioned earlier, and he's got the potential, you know, he's intelligent. I forget who said this, but someone described the difference between Denny Villeneuve as a director who did 2049 and Dune and a lot of great films. The difference between him and Nolan is Denny Villeneuve makes films to show you how smart you are as an audience member, when you figure out the complex plot or the themes behind it or whatever it is that is complicated about the film. Christopher Nolan gives me the feeling that he's trying to show you how smart he is in terms of what he's doing with the timeline and how he's putting the puzzle together. And I mean, I I even saw an interview where he literally said, I don't like making a straightforward film because if it's too easy for the audience to figure it out, then like, what are we really doing here? Like, I like for you to have to watch a film multiple times and for the storyline to be complex and for you to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And I'm like, you know, that's one way to look at it. I can't tell you that you're wrong. If that's your choice and that's your style, that's one thing. But I think he gets a little too caught up in how it makes him feel as a creator. I could be wrong. I'm not trying to malign the guy, but that's the feeling that I get, especially from his recent work. Did I like it? We didn't get into it too much. I had very different experiences from my first to my second viewing for a confluence of factors. Again, one of them I admit was just going to the movie way too late and being way too tired by the end and having trouble staying awake. I hate to use such a cliche example, but I can go watch three hours and 45 minutes of Lawrence of Arabia at 11 p.m. at night, and I guarantee you I'm not falling asleep watching that. Just a different pace, different scope of film. But that aside... We don't rate films here famously on Danger Close. We've thrown out numbers here and there. I feel it for this example, it's useful. I would say that I walked out of my first viewing giving this film a six. I was really disappointed in what he chose not to depict and what was missing and how long the third act dragged and what they chose to put in there as opposed to expounding on some of the characters and showing you more of the two female characters, for example. Even if the film had been as long, I think you could have traded some of those scenes for others and it would have been a better film. But on my second viewing, I would give this an eight. Again, the sound was so much better. I appreciated the score a lot more. I didn't always agree with what he was doing with the sound design, but I understand where he was coming from. And I was like, okay, this is going to work for a lot of people. I can see what he's doing here. It's not ideal for me, but that's subjective. I think a lot of that was successful. I still find the film just way too long. One review called it seven pounds of sausage stuffed into a three pound bag. And that's a bit hyperbolous, but somewhat accurate. It felt like a complete film up until the Trinity test for two hours with a climax. And then it felt like 
two separate courtroom dramas smashed into an hour in the last act that didn't really have a climax. Like they sort of did. He tried with the Einstein storyline and with, you know, the sort of Strauss getting his. But like I never cared about that character in the first place and didn't understand why he was a such a big part of the story. So when he has his downfall of not being selected for this committee, like I just didn't care that much, you know? Again, I would have liked much more a focus on the rest of Oppenheimer's life and seeing some of his interactions, seeing how much he struggled with Truman putting his foot in his mouth and saying the wrong thing multiple times, not just in the meeting that they had at the White House. Oh, it's so painful, right? And how he got in his own way and ended up making an enemy out of the Truman administration to the point where they basically ignored all his future reports on his recommendations about H-bomb development and international relations, etc. It's really commendable what Oppenheimer spent the rest of his life doing in trying to stop more mass destruction, which clearly affected him for the rest of his life. And the movie just doesn't really go into that enough and spends a lot more time with these kind of what I think it's trying to lead up to like a twist at the end, which I felt was unnecessary and just didn't have the impact. I think Nolan wanted it to have. So I did like it and I'm glad Jackie convinced me to go see it a second time because my review was much more favorable as opposed to my first viewing. (laughs) But I do wish he'd done a lot of things differently. Liam! Liam, please take us on a very positive ride to how much you (laughs) love this movie. Yeah. Oh my God, best movie. Oh my goodness. This was just a good movie. Objective of this movie. I read an interview with Christopher Nolan where he said that kind of like his ideal audience member for this is somebody who comes in knowing very little about J. Robert Oppenheimer. You know, he said most people like they know about the atomic bomb and they know that there was a test. Probably they know it was at Los Alamos and they know that Oppenheimer was kind of the, the spearhead of the whole thing. And maybe they know that he had some kind of general falling out with the American government or like he wasn't in good standing. Maybe they know that. And if that's all they know, or if they know less then this movie is kind of for them. And I think that is a large part of the objective and a large part of where this movie succeeds and fails. I think that is a statement of truth and a statement of purpose that is both a good thing and a bad thing. Because <laughs> it's kind of like, well, if you don't know a whole lot about Oppenheimer, then you won't notice all of the things that we didn't do with this story. In that, apart from my general distrust and hate's a strong word, but my my distrust of Nolan as a filmmaker, I'm not a a fan of his work more often than not. But apart from that, I'm kind of his ideal audience member in, in this respect, because that's me pretty much. I didn't know a whole lot about Oppenheimer going in. I know more about Oppenheimer having watched the day after Trinity documentary on criterion. And just from the articles that I've read and the, the research that this movie did inspire me to do a little bit of research on my own, which is neither here nor there. But I also think that it was Christopher Nolan's 
opportunity to one, try to create an atom bomb explosion without CGI. I think he really wanted to do that. That felt like the thing that piqued his interest from a filmmaking standpoint, because he is most interested as a filmmaker in doing these technical spectacles to a certain extent Mm -hmm. where his early career with memento it was very stripped down very low scale and he wanted to tell you a story in a way that kept you on your toes that was much more twisty christopher nolan but he has since gone into a very different direction in his career i think where a lot of it is the technical marvel the the technical wizardry kind of aspect to his filmmaking if it's not his focus it has without him realizing it taken over his entire mystique that's what people are going to see nobody goes to see a christopher nolan movie for the stellar acting nobody goes to see a christopher nolan movie for the for the writing like it's it's just not what they go for which is a shame because in this movie as we discussed the Acting in particular is top-notch. There's some really wonderful performances in this and some people doing a very, very great deal with very little to work with. So yeah, I think he wanted to make a biopic that was also a technical marvel to behold. I mean, this, this might be casting a little bit of shade here, but I feel like he almost wanted this movie to be as culturally relevant today as the atom bomb was at its creation in 1945. Maybe that's not his intention, but that's the way that the marketing and the buzz has sort of like built this movie up. This movie got awfully inflated by the Nolan fan base, even prior to its release. You're not wrong there. You have people who are, Industry people, screenwriters saying that this is the greatest film of the century and most important film of the century, and it's not. No. I I did see the word masterpiece thrown around an awful lot in reviews. An awful lot, which automatically sets me up for hating something. (laughs) And I realized this about myself, and I tried very, very hard. I made a concerted effort to separate myself out from the buzz and try to go into it with as open mind as possible, because I knew if I came out of the movie hating it, nobody would trust me anyway. <laughs> like, I know this about myself, and I know how I come off, and I get it, and I understand, and it's fine. I would have trusted you, Liam. I would have gotten it. Oh, thank and you. And so would Dan. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Was it on target? I think it was. I think it did hit its objective. I don't love its objective. If that makes sense. Like, I think it's, as we've discussed, I think its purpose was a little narrow and a little misguided, but I think for its objective of this movie, I think it did what it meant to do and did it pretty well. I would have much rather, and I know this places me in the minority, not of our three assembled hosts here. (laughs) but of the population at large, I would have much rather seen this in the hands of another filmmaker. Mm-hmm. You know who would have done really good at this? Spielberg. Yes and no. <laughs> I thought about that. I've been trying to think 
And the closest I can get to like who I would want to see direct this is maybe Ron Howard. Oh, I can't get on board with that. I mean, apart from how he kind of fucked up a beautiful mind here and there, somebody who doesn't feel the need to put their imprint on a movie. (gasps) Jane Campion. Oh, that's an interesting one. She could have done this in a really interesting way that wouldn't have made it all about her. The, um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, would have liked it, to. Wait, can, do I get to throw my name? Yes, in of course. Yeah, absolutely. Of Go course. ahead. I, I didn't game. know you were going to, by all means. If we're picking imaginary directors, the one thing I didn't have a chance to mention simply because I've mentioned it before and I don't want to sound like a broken record. And while they were different people and different topics, I feel like what Damien Chazelle did with First Man accomplished so many of the things this film was trying to do in such a more concise way. And I've listened to Katie's episode on it, so I know she might disagree. You're not wrong. I think this reminded me of First Man a lot. But First Man was tight by comparison. It is edited tightly and does not have a lot of fluff. The stories that they're telling. They're very similar stories of these two individuals doing a lot. The subjective internal psychology of a man who has a lot on his shoulders and is the most famous person on Earth during a very specific point in time. Well, you will definitely get me to ride a nuke like Slim Pickens before you get me to wish Damien Chazelle directed anything. (laughs) But. I understand where you're coming from. Wait, but have you seen First Man? That's the one of his I haven't seen. Uh, Well, then. (laughs) I've seen like three of his other movies. I know, but I think those all suck compared to First Man. (laughs) It's definitely his best, honestly. He he does a real good job with. And maybe it's just because of Ryan Gosling. But anyway, we digress. At some point, we're going to cover First Man. So, yes, I would have liked to have seen this movie made by somebody else. Keep the same cast. Love the cast. The cast was great. Perfect cast. I agree. Katie, you brought up Aaron Sorkin a couple of times. There were a couple of points where this did remind me of something Sorkin wrote, and then at the same time, really, really didn't, but in kind of a bad way. If you take two of Sorkin's biopics, you have the social network where there was a lot of like cultural name dropping of like, comes in, hey, I'm working on this thing. It's called The Wall. Mm-hmm. you know and it's like there's the whole like in oppenheimer the what's it called los alamos as like the screen fades to black and just the words los alamos just hang out there in the darkness you know it's just like weird little shit like that that's just like guys we know you don't have to put a hat on it but in contrast i don't know if you've seen his steve jobs movie no it's actually phenomenal but this is again sorry a bit of a tangent but Wozniak described that movie as every scene and conversation in it is a fabrication. And he got it exactly right. Interesting. I'm more interested in it because of that. Yeah. His response to it was it was perfectly the way it was, except it never was like that. Mm, Right, right. This could have used maybe, to Dan's point earlier, a little more of that. A little more fast and loose with the adaptation in places might have served this well like getting the spirit of the thing better than the letter of the thing but again i don't know if that's in christopher nolan's tool bag i don't think he's he's got that one did i like it kind of i did (laughs) in spite of everything and again this is a large tribute to the actors who the fuck are you where who stole liam wait wait 
there's a lot I hate in this movie. I mean, we're at a we're at a maybe mostly and kind of so far, so it's mostly positive. <laughs> I kind of did. I think it's mostly the acting. The acting was very very good. I am in again the minority that hated the score and hated the sound design. I thought they were tedious and bombastic and an assault on the senses that I really did not appreciate <laughs> and thought was wildly out of place in this fucking movie. It's just like, hey, who should we get to do this? Philip Glass? No. Eh, what if we played Philip Glass backwards through a broken speaker on max volume? It sounded like it should have been a Philip Glass soundtrack, like an atonal symphony by Philip right, Glass. I get you. Have you ever seen, are you familiar with Einstein on the beach? Much like this. It's a four hour opera about Einstein, except there's no singing. It's just Philip Glass music and like a giant ship coming on for like an inch at a time for 45 minutes is just this ship crossing. It's not meant to be enjoyed. It's meant to be experienced. And this is kind of where I feel like this movie's head is at. I didn't love this movie in a different medium. I could see myself loving this movie. If this were a new metal bands, four disc concept album, (laughs) I'd never fucking stop listening to it. But it's not that, but it also kind of is all at the same time. Like this is kind of a concept album from like a prog metal fuck boy band, (laughs) (laughs) but they forgot to do that and made it a movie instead. So yeah, I kind of liked it, (laughs) but I mean, there's a lot to hate here, but there's also a lot to actually kind of love, but I don't know. There's a lot to hate. So yeah, I kind of liked it. I'm going to rename this podcast to Liam's just fucking with us, you guys. I mean. (laughs) (sighs) I thought I was fairly balanced. I thought I was the most middle of the road person on this, on this episode, but. Katie was the Liam in this episode, except that she doesn't know if she liked it. That's like the only saving (laughs) grace to Katie's review. Liam, what are we doing next? Next, we're shifting gears, but staying in the realm of World War II. From 1942, this is an Ernst Lubitsch comedy called To Be or Not To Be. We're going to experience the Lubitsch touch? You're going to get the Lubitsch touch. Oh, man. I don't know if you're ready. I'm ready. All day. This is starring Carol Lombard and Jack Benny, which if anybody is familiar with like old school radio comedy serials, Jack Benny was a huge personality in the 40s and into the 50s. Very dry sense of humor to the point the first time I saw this, it took me two thirds of the way through the movie to figure out if I was supposed to be laughing or not. I was like, is this bad or is this hilarious? <laughs> I don't know. It's about a group of actors in Nazi occupied Poland that are trying to track down a German spy, if I remember correctly. So. We'll get into that, and I think it's going to be a fun talk. Definitely shorter than this one. Back to literally World War II. Shot during World War II about World War II. Yep. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We tried to get this one out as fast as possible. Uh, Sorry, folks. Don't apologize. If you think this film is a masterpiece, good for you. I'm very happy for you. At least we're honest, you know? We're not going to... We're not going to kiss any butts or pretend like we have opinions that aren't actually our own. So despite the fact that most critics disagreed with us on this one, you get what you get. And you don't throw a fit. (laughs) 
Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye.